This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Oro Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake, and somewhere in Western Los Angeles. Oro was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission to create a facility that treats addicts and alcoholics with connection and compassion rather than control. They have decades and decades and decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure that when you kick, your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is crucial when you're kicking fucking fentanyl or Oxycontin or heroin or crack or meth or whatever you're kicking. You want your kick to be as comfortable as possible. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Equine therapy, surfing, sound bath meditation, and of course, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. If you're fucked and you're looking to get better and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to do it, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Soberlink. As we all know, addiction is a serious issue that needs to be addressed. Nearly 15 million people in the U.S. have an alcohol use disorder, and that's just alcohol only, not other drugs. Only 10% of them get treatment. This can be attributed to the stigma that surrounds addiction and how people don't want to talk about it. Soberlink supports the no-judgment zone that is dopey and strives to erase the stigma of alcohol addiction. Their remote alcohol monitoring tool has helped over 500,000 people to be more accountable in their sobriety. Dopey was started with open and honest conversations about addiction and recovery, and Soberlink encourages this to help rebuild trust and maintain sobriety. Dopey has teamed up with Soberlink to create a healthy habits guide for those in recovery. You visit www.soberlink.com dopey to download the healthy habits guide. And if you or someone you know can benefit from accountability for alcohol recovery, you'll also find a form on that page to sign up for $50 off promo code exclusive to you guys in the Dopey Nation. So please go to soberlink.com dopey and uh, get the 50 bucks off. And let Soberlink help you to stay off of the sauce. And thank you. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Sober Buddy, an amazing app that is totally available to you if you need some help getting or staying sober. It's the little blue fluffy guy you may have seen in sober memes on Instagram or Facebook. I love the Sober Buddy app. I really do. I've been using it because it not only gives you challenges that help you to get sober, it helps you think differently about your life. It has a sober tracker down to the second. Daily check-ins that give you advice based on your mood. Cute motivational memes and helpful tips too. Over 60,000 people have already used Sober Buddy to help them get sober. And Sober Buddy's been featured in over 70 news stories and many episodes of Dopey. The Sober Buddy app is available in both the iTunes and Google Play stores. Or you can check out their website at YourSoberBuddy.com. Check it out. It's actually a really amazing app. And before we get to the show, I want to tell you guys about a great recovery podcast called Recovery in the Middle Ages a podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. 
Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step alt-recovery, the newest medical research, and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. If the neighbors only knew, find Recovery in the Middle Ages where you find all of your podcasts. I've been on it. A bunch of folks have been on it. It's a great podcast. Check it out. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. Um, Had a long, hard, sick week. I hope you guys are well. I have some disgusting chest cold, and I'm finishing up the show. And who calls me but my dad? So my dad's here. Welcome to the show, Dad. Hello. Hi. Hi, everybody. If I want to feel better, all I have to do is ask my dad how he's doing. How are you doing, Dad? Terrible, terrible. <laughs> this knee pain, shoulder pain, neck pain. I'm, I'm seeing like three, no, four doctors next week. Dopey Nation. It's. I'm. I'm gonna come back though. I'm gonna make a big recovery. At least that's what I'm. I'm hoping. <clears throat> and do you think this is the first year that you're not gonna have a Passover Seder? Oh yeah. It's actually no. We missed last. COVID was last year also. We used to have wonderful, wonderful status, uh, really wonderful. It's, it's, a, it's, it's not good. So, t- but tonight I'm having my solo one. I'm having, you can tell the, the Dopey Nation gefilte fish and horseradish and different parts of, uh, of the Seder plate I'm going to have, which is mixed nuts, wine, and apples put together with a horseradish on top of it on a piece of masa. That's your, ver- so, that's your hero set? Yeah, that's it. That's corrosive. Yeah. All right. Well, good for you. Anyways, way to, wait, way to carry easy. carry the torch. Um, yeah. We were supposed to go in, but um, I got sick, and now Nora's sick, and Susan's sick, and you know, it's 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 a mess. And you saw this week that Gilbert Godfrey died. Yeah, I I did. I didn't see that. Yes, I did. It's that's a terrible, terrible tragedy. Yes. Did you? I I know that. Uh, did you see him around the neighborhood ever? The answer is yes, I did. I did. I think he lived really close by. I think he lived in Penn South. I think you're right. At some point he did. And then he moved somewhere in Chelsea, somewhere else after he got married. Yeah, I remember I used to see him all the time, and I would shout his name. And and, and one of my friends actually wrote me that they remember being with me one time, and Gilbert was walking down the street, and I said something. I yelled something to him, and he thanked me and shook my hand. In my memory, Gilbert always hated when I screamed his name, and um, and Mom always hated Gilbert Gottfried. She did. She she always um, hated his voice. Oh yeah, yeah. The voice is very you know nasal uh, nasal voice. Yeah, but obviously that was his shtick. He put that on, and uh, and he famously performed at Katz's 125th anniversary and you were there. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That I think you mentioned it in one of your comments on, on Twitter or something. It was an Instagram post. My dad doesn't know the difference between a comment an email a review, nothing. It was an Instagram post and a Facebook post. Yes. Yeah. Right. Whatever it was, whatever it was. So you see, he he was standing in front of the the big crowd at Katz's, and and he made this joke, which of course is not a very funny joke, but from him it was funny. So he stood up there and he said, uh, 
that uh, Katz's restaurant has killed more Jews than Hitler, which, and everybody laughed, but of course it's not that funny. But, uh, <laughs> did you, uh, did you ever, did I ever tell you the follow-up to that story? No, what? So they pay him, right? They, they pay oh, him oh, to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was supposed to get free food forever or something. They pay him at the store with cash and they give him a card that says he eats for free for life. Yeah. And right. uh, so the next week, he comes to the store and he, he eats. I think he brings his kids in and his wife in and he eats and he goes out to the cashier and she doesn't honor the card. And, right. and he lost his mind and he left. And then in the time where I was kind of stalking Artie Lang, um, yeah. I would uh, I would bring Artie sandwiches um, to this podcast network called Compound Media and, you know, around 30th Street. And uh, I would go there with a Katz's bag. And one time I went there and Gilbert Gottfried and his wife uh, were there because he was going to go on Artie's show. And wow. um, and I, to I told him that was mis big misunderstanding. We wanted to clear the air. And they they were so annoyed with with the whole thing. But to me, it was so funny that uh, he wanted he wanted free cats. I mean, like, that's the worst thing because he's a professional schnurr. And he gets right. what he wants, but then they still don't honor the card. Right, right, yeah. Well, so it never got rectified, right? <laughs> no, it never got never. rectified. And I tried to fix it, and it never, it never got fixed. Yeah, well, I, 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 he survived. Well, he survived without cats, I guess, that's for sure. And then another thing is that uh, he was amazing on the Howard Stern show over the years. He, the, Howard did a little memorial of Gilbert. Uh, a much more in-depth memorial than this one. And uh, yeah. and Gilbert had gone on the Howard Stern show 150 times or something. and yeah. um, But he hadn't been on in 20 years, okay? And Gilbert would do, like, imitations. He would do uh, Groucho Marx, but as a senile old man, or he'd do Jewish Dracula, or he would do Jerry Seinfeld. It was he was ridiculously funny on the Stern show, but Howard never explains why he never had Gilbert back in for 20 years or something. Did, and did he explain it now? No, no, he didn't explain it. A guest, uh, 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 like a listener called in and Howard said, I'll explain it next week. But this is the great mystery on the Howard Stern show. It's like when Artie, like Gilbert went out when Artie like tried to kill himself and, uh, and we don't have an answer. And it makes me think like, Howard never had Gilbert back on. Will Howard ever have Artie back on? Or does it just not matter? You know, does it just not matter? I don't know. Well, it, it certainly does not matter to me, but you, I guess you you guys are your fans of this guy, so you're, you're very, very curious. But did you read where he, he gave what, I think that a comedian that was on, on the podcast, uh, uh, $500,000 thanking him for, for being on his show. Is no, that that's so funny. That's so funny. It was, uh, that was Jackie, the joke man, Martling. And I, and I was so stupid. <clears throat> it was, it was April 1st. He tweeted that Howard gave him $500,000. It took me like two hours to realize it was an April, an April fool's joke. That's how oh swift, God. swift I am. But, uh, it does, it does matter to me though. It does yeah. matter to me because like as a, as an audience member, I'm just a sucker for, for those old school relationships. And, uh, and I'm sad, I'm sad that Gilbert Godfrey's gone. It, it just shows the impermanence of life, which is something you're, you're becoming all too familiar with. Right. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm getting to be way too familiar with it. Yes. Oh, oh, you know what, Howie? You know Howie from YouTube? He yeah. he sent me um, a link, a, a live feed to Gilbert's funeral, right? And wow. uh, and it was a bunch of pretty famous comedians, like remembering how how notoriously cheap Gilbert Gottfried was. Like one time they were driving back from a gig in New Jersey, and uh, and the driver of the car wanted Gilbert to uh, pay the toll, and back then the toll was three bucks. So he goes into his wallet and he he takes out each dollar at a time and he kisses him and he's like, "So long, boys," and he gives them to the driver. <laughs> like he, it's just, but but it was like also the guy who ran the funeral was this very famous comedian called Jeff Ross who's like a big comic roaster guy, very, another like classic Katz's guy, always at Katz's. Yeah. And he had the whole uh, funeral sing sun, Sunrise Sunset, which is very pretty. Wow. Yeah, amazing. Did, did you, I'm just changing the subject, you know, this horrible thing on the subway, uh, the, uh, this guy who yeah. shot so many people. It was reported in the Taste paper that this guy stopped at Katz's the <laughs> yeah. day he was arrested. I know classic is that, is that weird it's, it's it's just he's chosen it's ridiculous you know the whole thing is is ridiculous it's not surprising everybody everybody loves to eat at katz's so i have to tell everyone to sign up and listen and watch patreon go sign up for patreon help support dopey there's so much material on patreon you you signed up for patreon right dad Absolutely. Yeah. I'm a big time payer. Yes. Do you think you're getting your money's worth? Don't an answer that Absolutely. slowly. Answer it slowly. I, yes, I am getting my money's worth. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think I'm behind and, and listening to some of the stuff that I haven't gotten to yet. We actually put up some never before seen footage from the Katz's 125th anniversary today. So you should watch oh. that. I think you'll think it's very funny. Um, when they had the pastrami eating contest. Also, uh, yeah. uh, I'm just going to breeze through this stuff. Are you, are you, are you subscribed to dopey YouTube, Dan? I, I, well, I watch it. I think, you know what? I think I did. Yes. I think I did subscribe. Yes. So, so please everybody subscribe to dopey YouTube, uh, join dopey Patreon and buy the candles. We have nice candles. Dad, did you get the candles? I got five of them. Do you like them? Yeah, no, they're terrific. Do you think You're we really should good. do a, do you think we should do a dopey Yortzite candle or is that just too much? No, no, no good. Sorry. That's that's too sad. All right. Well, if you want a dopey candle, you go to northavcandles.com slash collections slash dopey. They smell really good. They're very high quality um candles. And dad you always have some horrible stuff to talk about on the show. So what is your criticism this week? Well, actually, I want it's going to be apropos now because you said your side candles, but most of the Dopey Nation may not understand that. It's, it's candles that you, you light in mourning for, for people who have died. That's the your side candle. And that's pretty much my criticism. You had Mackenzie Phillips on. Which was terrific. I mean, she's such a, you know, an incredible actor and a life that she led. And then she was telling these personal story names like Va Valerie Bertinelli's husband, Tom, and somebody named Wolfie. I have no idea who, who these Eddie, people are. Eddie Van Halen. So, in other words, the dopey Valerie Bertinelli was married to a guitar player named Eddie Van Halen 
who was, you know, some people think was the greatest guitar player who ever lived. You know who Eddie Van Halen was, don't you, Dan? Well, I know the name. And what about this Wolfie name? That's what, what Eddie Van that? Halen's son. Ah. ah. So, so in other words, I'm helping out the rest of the Dopey Nation who didn't know that. That's, that's good. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're doing something good for the show. And I'm sure you are. I'm sure there's a lot of, a lot of people get a lot out of these segments with you, Dad. But who's, this, who's Tom? What are you talking about? I, I thought she mentioned that uh, in, in conjunction with Valerie Bertinelli. Okay, but now you're clear that it was Eddie Van Halen and Eddie Van Halen's son, Wolfie, right? I see. Right, okay. Um, all right. It. Now, more importantly, this episode of Dopey is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is this company that makes this amazing uh, 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics and aptogens in this one scoop of something called AG1. Now, this is a real sponsor, Dad. I've been using this stuff, uh, I think, for 15 days in a row. It comes in super high-quality packaging. It's delicious. It, uh, it's lifestyle-friendly, Dad, whether you eat oh, yeah. keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. Uh, I mean, all those things that I don't eat. Are you, you take a multivitamin, right? No. Well, maybe you should. Maybe you should stop ruining this ad and be quiet and listen to this amazing product called AG1 by Athletic Greens. It costs you less than $3 a day, and you're investing in your health, which is cheaper than a lot of coffee places, a lot of caramel macchiatos. It was created when its founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine, which cost him a hundred bucks a day. He created this. AG donated 1.2 million meals to kids in 2020. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews, and it's trusted by leading health experts such as Tim Ferriss and Michael Gervais. I actually like it. And to make it, I actually like taking Athletic Greens. I feel like I'm healthy. It tastes good. It makes me feel good. It makes my, it, it helps my digestion in a nice way. I think it's helped me get through this ailment quickly. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash dopey. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash dopey. Take ownership over your health and pick up the daily nutritional insurance. Doesn't that sound good, Dad? Really big time stuff? Yeah, it sounds, it sounds terrific. I think it comes from uh, Australia or New Zealand, too. Really nice quality packaging. So, and, and they ship it directly to you. Then. They ship wow. it to you, but check it out. They ship it to you in this big pouch uh, of powder and then these little pouches that I didn't realize were travel pouches. I thought that was what they shipped me. So I used those first. And then you mix it in this bottle and it comes with this with this cap and you shake it up, right? Yeah. And uh, and I lost the cap to the bottle a few days later. Cool. and uh, And then the dog vomited up the cap to the bottle. The dog ate the bottle cap, so that's gone. So now I mix it in one of Susan's little cups and shake it. But I, I like it, and I, and we like the dog. Are you excited to meet the dog? He, he looks very cute, yeah, very cute. Uh, but again, it's another responsibility that the family has to take care of. Oh, Jesus. What, what, do you think, what do you think? We're going to count on you to come up and walk the dog? I can't even walk myself. I mean, 
Right. So you're you're out. You're at, you're not you're not planning on 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 dog sitting anytime soon. Puppy sitting. Well, the the answer is the answer is no. But if I ever got healthy, and if Winnie approves of me, then uh, then maybe because I can I could have a dog here actually. Um, if I, you know, in the apartment. So, but I think you'll I'm, like I'm the dog. I think you'll like the dog. This I've, I like this dog more than any, maybe more than any pet I've ever had. Well, more than the turtle? More than what? Oh, yeah. More than the turtle. More than the turtle. Well, all right. That's saying a lot. <laughs> and of course, Dopey Nation, my dad is referring to this turtle that we had had when I was a kid that you have to feed the turtle meat. I think we'd mostly feed it turkey meat and hamburger meat. And the the excrement of the turtle was so foul that my mother didn't want him in the apartment anymore. So we set yeah. the turtle free at one of the lakes in Central Park. Yeah, and, and, his, uh, and ancestors of that turtle are still going around. He may still be alive, too. It's possible. Central Park has wonderful turtles. Do you have anything Sorry. else that you want to share with the Dopey Nation before we move on? Well, I just there's no, nobody's writing a review. So no more. I've noticed that. There, were, but it also means that there are so much less one star reviews. Well, I don't even want to talk about the one star reviews. You saw um, though. You saw that. What's his face? Um, Jesus Christ! I can't even remember his name. That, Joey Pepper. Joey Pepper fucking took his one star review down. He did. It's gone. Oh, it's about time. I yeah. think the guilt finally got to Joey Pepper. So listen, go to iTunes, leave a review. A five-star review would be nice. My dad does nothing all day. The his fantasy basketball is over. What what position did you finish in, Dad? Well, it turns out that after a horrible season where my first three picks were injured the whole year, I came in fourth place, beating guess who? Nicholas. No. Seymour. Me. I haven't even done it. I'm not even in the league. I don't count. You, you came you came in fifth and David and David Blank came in sixth. Well, so I, I came beat, in I came in fifth, huh? You came in fifth ahead of a ahead of a, of the world famous Blank family. You came in fifth. David came in sixth, so I beat one blank and you. I was so my whole team was on auto pick. My this this is not show this my, is my not performance. A bad idea. Next it's year. I might rejoin your cockamamie league next year, but hopefully not. Well, I, I hope you do. Absolutely. At the beginning of the show, uh, we played some music from an old school dopey listener who goes by the name Klerbenstein or Stein. Klerbenstein or Stein. And that was his like electronic take on an old dopey theme song that my friend John made years ago. And he has a record coming out next week. And when I get the link next week, I'm going to I'll mention it and I'll play you the full electronic dance music version. It was actually, ironically, his submission to the old, uh, the old dopey podcast theme song challenge from so many years ago where uh, Joey Pepper uh, entered that contest, too. Wow. Yeah. No, the, the music makes the show so much better. It's terrific. All right. Well, that's that's good. So you you support Klerbenstein and all of his endeavors. I well, I didn't hear it, but uh, but I will listen to it, and I support all of the Dolby Nation sending him music. It's terrific. Okay. Good. It really is. Now you know we're in this partnership with Sober Buddy. Yes. And Sober Buddy is an app that helps you stay sober. And we had been advertising them for a long time, but I never used the app. 
and I've started using the app and they have all these challenges, right? Yeah. And one of, yeah, you do heard the buy a stranger, a cup of coffee challenge, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I did. You should buy a, you should buy a stranger, a cup of coffee or maybe a, a loved one, a cup of coffee. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I think that that guy, Klerbenstein, made me realize that I could do a Sober Buddy challenge about the Dopey Nation. So that was my idea. And the, the challenge was, it, this is what it says. It says appreciation. And again, Do Sober Buddy is this app, and, it, and it, it has challenges that help you kind of remind you of why you get sober in the first place. And this thing says appreciation is, and there's a, a quote from Voltaire, Dad. You know Voltaire? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Appreciation is a wonderful thing. It makes what is excellent in others belong to us as well. Can you imagine getting a letter praising and appreciating you for making a big difference in their life? Take a moment to write a letter of appreciation to express how, mu express how much someone has impacted your life. Um, so that's what I decided to do. And I didn't realize you were going to be on the show or I would have written the letter to you, Dad. Really? Yep. Yes. Dear Dad, thank you for turning me into a heroin addict. Love, David. <laughs> Don't do that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I mean, I will write, I think hopefully before it's over, you will get the next Sober Buddy appreciation letter, Dad. Okay. But for now, so I wrote a letter to the Dopey Nation. You want to hear it? Yes. Okay. All right. Here we go. Dear Dopey Nation. This is my letter to someone who has had a positive effect on my life. It's you guys in the Dopey Nation. What a long, strange trip it's been. So long and so strange, it is almost unbelievable to me that any of you guys from the very beginning are still around now. But I know that some of you are. Randy, Misty, Tina. To be honest, I struggle figuring out who is still with us, who has stopped listening, and who has died, which is a sad truth when dealing with our shared affliction of addiction. You guys have had such an important effect on me and on Dopey. By listening to the show, you created the show. If a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, did it make a sound? Well, if you guys hadn't listened to Dopey, would Dopey be anything at all? And almost more importantly, by sharing your own crazy stories with us, providing shared experiences from all over the world, and whether it was Maurice in Australia telling the story of finding the dead body in the phone booth, or Hot Wheels with the DMT, or my dad criticizing the show, or the woman who wrote the one-star review that criticized my dad's white privilege and his opulent apartment and lake house, or it was Tina saying that she didn't know if she wanted to stay sober, or Jake from West Virginia singing his version of Good So Bad that everyone loves so much more than mine from his basement, or talking with Chris's family about the loss of their son and our dear friend and Dopey co-founder, or Fentanyl J., who admitted recently his colossal misdeeds and staring down a potentially very long and painful prison sentence. Your truth has always had an unbelievable effect on me and an even bigger effect on Dopey. I am most grateful to the Dopey Nation itself for being kind to each other. Obviously not always kind. Sometimes you guys are mean, but families don't always agree and families don't always get along. Sometimes families fight in peace or at war. The Dopey Nation has always been an amazing watering hole for freaks and weirdos, addicts and alcoholics, as well as their normie loved ones to coexist in and get to know each other and try to understand each other. I am so grateful to you guys for populating our watering hole and for being you. 
my gratitude to you guys is endless. I love you and thank you for being a part of our Dopey community. Your guys' impact on me has been more than positive. It's been life-changing. Love, Dave. What do you think, Doug? Terrific. Very, very good. Right. Do you, ha- do you, do you think the Dopey Nation has impacted your life in a positive way, too? Uh, absolutely. I, I tell all the time how something like this could even exist and it, it it happened because of you you and chris and and you're you're pushing it forward which is wonderful well my dad recently called me the elon musk of addiction podcasts so that was good <laughs> i don't know if that's a compliment <laughs> did you ever uh did you ever go to dopey zoom dad no no i i i was tempted a few times to do it but so why didn't you go i i i thought it would i don't know i didn't want to create a scene or anything like that i'd, I'd rather be uh, the, uh, my anonymous self back here where i uh, where i enjoy what everybody else is doing the fly on the wall yeah all right yeah the the old jewish fly on the wall um here we go did you know that there's over 25 meetings a week in dopey zoom that it's 100% free they do aa na dharma Whatever they do it all, Dad. Did you know that? I did. I certainly do know that. Yeah, it's fantastic. It really is fantastic. They do uh, marathons and talent shows and all this stuff. The Zoom ID is always eight zero four three hundred five eight six. The password is always Toodles in lowercase. I just suggested the Dopey Zoom uh, to uh, a Dopey Nation listener. Go to Dopey Zoom if you're having trouble connecting, Dad. Maybe you should go. What do you think? No, I, listen, I, I think it's a great resource. Uh, that, that's one of the great things uh, about about Dopey and the Dopey Nation is that everybody is is providing this help for everybody. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah, so maybe maybe they can have help for arthritis. Maybe, maybe I can get you some You should advice. go go to the Dopey, Dopey Zoom and get some support. And at the last Saturday of the month, if you're in Dopey Patreon, you should come to the Dopey Patreon Zoom, even you, Dad. It's a lot of fun. We're going to be playing games, giving away prizes, lots of fun stuff. That's the last Saturday of the month. 9.30, yes. We have a really, really, really wild guest today, Dad. Do you know what Bicycle Day is? Bicycle Day? Yes. No. April 19th is Bicycle Day, and they're celebrating that on April 19th in 1943, the Swiss father of psychedelic medicine, do you know his name? No. Dr. Albert Hoffman dropped lysergic acid diethylamide at 4.20 p.m. Do you know why that's funny that he did it at 4.20 p.m.? I have no idea. Because 4.20 is the the universal stoner time, the time that stoners get high, and, and, and now April 20th is the big weed holiday. But Bicycle Day is April 19th, and it's the big acid holiday and our guest today is a a former acid dealer a an author a filmmaker an outlaw and a, and a celebrant of bicycle day his name is seth ferranti you excited to hear him on the show well we'll see <laughs> it doesn't sound like so great to me but we'll see yes he he's he's he served his time he's an author he's a he's an outlaw filmmaker I mean, a lot of people get a lot out of psychedelics, Dad. Just you didn't get a lot out of psychedelics. You didn't drop acid and ride your bike around Manhattan or, or Flushing Meadows back in the day. No, 
You never, you no, never no. took a uh, liquid LSD in your eyes and went to uh, the old World's Fair site in Queens. Uh, no. You never no. ate uh, mescaline and went to the old Corona King of Ice and had ices tripping out with Paul Simon. I, I did. I did have uh, rum raisin ices at Corona, which is terrific. But not with Paul Simon and not on mescaline. Well, he was he was not in Corona that day when I went. And no mescaline. No, 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 no. All right, enough, 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 enough. Before we get to Seth Ferranti, I need to tell everybody, including you, Dad, that this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. As you know, life can be overwhelming, and many people are burned out without even knowing it. I think that definitely describes you. <laughs> Symptoms can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, huh? detachment, um, fatigue, or more. Um, better help is customized online therapy that offers video phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. This podcast is sponsored by better help and dopey listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash dopey podcast. That's B E T T E R H E L P.com slash dopey podcast. And I know you don't, my dad is really old fashioned. He doesn't, you don't believe in therapy, right? Dad. Well, you know, I did after mommy died, I, I was told to go. So I did. I think you need um, therapy now. I'll tell you this. I've been doing therapy since January, and a lot of it has been online therapy, and it's been amazingly helpful. Well, that's good. Listen, I'm not going to turn any help down, but right now I have to get my pain level lower. Okay. So that, All right. Just, just have, you, have they prescribed you any painkillers for this thing? Oh, yeah, they have. Yes. What are you taking? What's in the house right now? I'm not telling you. What do they give you? I'm not going to tell you. I'm taking Tylenol PM. They gave you oxycodone? Yes, they did. Hydrocodone? No. Hydromorphone? No. Dilaudid? No. Fentanyl lollipops? No, but during the surgery, I think part of the anesthesia was something with fentanyl. I think you should get therapy. I think everyone should get therapy and get it at better help and get 10% off the first month. At b e t t e r h e l p dot com slash dopey podcast. Thank you for coming on the show again, Dad. You're quite welcome, and uh, and I hope you feel better. And I hope you guys can come and see me next week. And yeah, yeah I've been, and what about you? you, you should, that the dopey nation isn't going to come and see you next week. You can tell me that off the show. On the show, you talk to the dopey nation. Oh well, all right. I, I dopey nation. I meant David's family to come. Yes. They think they're going to come see you next week, Dad. Well, well, with DopeyCon, whatever. DopeyCon 3. I was on the phone with Mountainside today. We might do it at Mountainside again. September 24th. Put it in your calendar, Dad. Well, that's common to me. See, that's that's the neighborhood. All right. All right. So here we go. Thank you, Dad. You want to say goodbye to the Dopey Nation before we move on to our next guest? Yes. Goodbye, Dopey Nation. Everybody stay well, healthy, and toodles for Chris. All right. Thanks, Dad. And here we go. Seth Ferranti. But before we get to Seth Ferranti, I forgot to tell the Dopey Nation about all of our incredible Dopey merchandise. You go to DopeyPodcast.com. There's so much nice clothing on there. There's the Good So Bad shirt, the Big Bird shirt, the 
the King Baby shirt, the new hoodie. Dad, you like you wear you wear dopey merch all the time, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I got my hat, I got my beanie, I got my dopey sweatshirt. Right. And yeah, and I I think well, you left a bunch of hats here. I don't know how they get those. Yeah, if you guys want any of the the snapbacks, you know, we're about to put out Big Bird snapbacks. Those are going to be nice. If you want a Big Bird beanie or a Big Bird snapback, just write me on Instagram and I will send it out to you. We got new stickers, new buttons, all sorts of shit. We are in a beautiful partnership with a printing company out of Cincinnati, Ohio called SRO Prints. If you need a printing company, contact them at SROprints.com. And uh, all right. Thanks, Dad. One more time. All righty. Okay. Here's Seth Ferranti. If you're watching, we're in the Dopey studio, and I have a very, very, very interesting, exciting guest on the show. His name is Seth Ferranti. Welcome to the show. Hey, yeah, what's up, man? I, I've been, uh, we've been going back and forth for a while, man. I'm glad to finally be on here. Long time going back and forth, and Seth is a writer, a producer, an outlaw, an ex-con, a contributor to the Hush Huffington Post, Vice fucking bicycle day enthusiast lsd advocate perhaps uh welcome i'm glad to see you man i've been i've been studying a bunch of your shit and it's and, and it's very impressive like holy ca- and your story is is insane i want to start with uh tell us about gorilla convict before you say anything else yeah so gorilla convict is um the the publishing house and kind of the website platform that I formed in uh, 2005 while I, w- while I was in prison serving a, a 25 year sentence. You know, it was kind of like, I kind of styled it back then, you know, like the voice of the convict. I just saw, you know, like with my own case too, you know, I, I saw a lot of stuff, you know, that the mainstream media only reports stuff a certain way, you know, and they, they kind of pigeonhole or stereotype people and they, they did it to me and they were doing it to a lot of others. And, um, you know, I mean, I mean, some, 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 some people, you know, are criminals. Some people are just hustlers. You know, entrepreneurs. You know, and and so I just want to kind of give a voice, you know, to these people that were being incarcerated, you know, due to the war on drugs. Because, you know, when you go into prison, like I did at a young age, you know, you watch all the movies and you think, oh, it's going to be like this, you know, it's going to be like that. But really, I mean, you know, over seventy-five percent of the people I met in there are pretty much. You know, regular people, they just got involved in the wrong things or were, were, you know, forced into bad situations, you know, be it with addiction, drugs, crime, violence. So I, I just wanted to, uh, you know, there's a lot of gray area in, in life. It's all not always black and white as the mainstream media or as uh, federal prosecutors or, you know, law enforcement will make it seem. So I kind of wanted to give a voice to that. But for me, it was also... Um, you know, I had a long time to do. I, I was looking for a career for myself. I was looking for a future. You know, I've always been very forward thinking. So I was like, you know, what can I do in here that's going to help me when I get out? Because I got to do all this, you know, multiple decades of prison. So, you know, I kind of came up with the idea, like I can be a writer, you know, from here. So it was kind of me reaching out to the world, you know, and, and trying, you know, to get my voice heard and trying to be recognized. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And it reminds me a little bit of Dopey in that, like, I always knew that the story of addiction is entertaining. You know what I mean? Like I, we, we, we tend to help people, you know, because it's a shared experience, 
but I knew that the stories themselves were entertaining. Like you knew when you, like I, I read a bit about you and I heard you on a, a bunch of things where you were already kind of in the world of reading about living off the grid or being a fugitive or, or reading stuff. Like that must've been like right there for you when it came to you. Like this is entertaining shit, right? Oh no, definitely. You know, I've, I've always been a very avid reader and, um, I've all, I've always been drawn to kind of the, the counterculture outlaw lifestyle. You know, I, I was a big fan of like, uh, you know, Hunter S Thompson's, you know, one yeah. of my heroes, you know, Henry Rollins, Jim Morrison, even, you know, like Axl Rose. So I was, I was already really attracted, you know, to that, to that kind of life. So, uh, you know, and, and like, I mean, it, it's crazy when you're in prison, you know, you just, and you're with all these people from all these different areas, especially the feds, you just have like, as a writer, you have all these I incredible sources. It's like, oh, like I'm, I'm, I'm doing a story on, uh, you know, the Supreme team from New York. You know, I can just like, if I need some different quotes or some different color for the piece, there's like a whole bunch of dudes from Queens right there. I can go right down and talk to them and they know the people I'm, I'm writing about, you know, they, they know the legends, they know the myths. So, you know, it was you know, I, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but looking back, you know, as a writer doing true crime stuff and gangster stuff, it was very convenient to be in prison because I was around a lot of criminals and I was around a lot of gangsters. But that's that's optimism, you know, to say it's convenient to be in prison at any second. And you did 21 years. So for you to sit here, sip your coffee, your tea and talk about the convenience of being in prison. I know you're an optimist. That's like a great well. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding? I mean, but that's in that's in retrospect. You know, that's in retrospect. Right. You know, and it's plus if you get older, you look at things. You know, I, I always tell people, for me, I don't think I'm like the most talented at, at anything, like writer, producer, director, storyteller, whatever. You know, um, I'm I'm pretty good at a lot of things. I'm pretty versatile, but I always tell people like my number one attribute is I'm relentless. Yeah, me too. You know, like when 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 I set an objective, like like I go for it. Like I'm a man of action. I do it. You know, and, and even like whatever I do, I do to the best of my ability at that time. You know, sometimes, you know, I look back at some of my original writings and I'm like, oh, you know, maybe I kind of cringe. But, you know, that's after like, you know, 20, 25 years experience of, of doing this. So, uh, you know, that's what that's what I always tell people, man. Just, you know, if you see something you want, I mean, you just got to do it. You just got to go get it. Make it happen. You got to go do it. You, and, and once you start doing it, you got to keep doing it. Now, one question that I haven't had answered in my research about you is, do you consider yourself a drug addict? You know, I've had, I've had times, you know, because like when you go to prison, I mean, I, I went to prison. I was, I was, uh, you know, I caught my case when I was 20, you know, I, they, they caught me when I was 22 and I went in and I got 25 years. So, you know, as a young man, I, I had all these ideals, you know, like I was really ahead of the times because, you know, I always tell people I never consider myself a criminal. I consider myself an outlaw because I broke laws that were wrong. So, you know, I, I was standing up for cannabis and psychedelics, you know, in, in, in the late 80s, like when, when I was 16, 17, 18 years old, you know, I was like, you know, this this stuff should be legal, you know. So but when you get that sentence and you get thrown in it and they throw all that stuff on you, like. You know, oh, you're wrong. You know, you're a drug addict. That's that's why, you know, you did this stuff. And, and they kind of try to put you in this box, you know, and they, they want, oh, you got to get help or you got to go with AA or NA. And I'm not saying, I mean, all, I'm not saying any of that stuff is wrong. Everybody has to do what's right for them. So, you know, I've, got, I've gone through times where I have considered 
myself, you know, a, a, a drug addict and I've gone through times, you know, where I don't, but I can say even to this day, I'm an extreme person. Like my, my favorite drug, you know, I, I never got into like heroin and coke, meth, stuff like that. I've always been a, a weed and psychedelics dude. And still to this day, like just recently, you know, I, I got to really watch myself because I, I love, I love cannabis. You know, I'm the type of dude, like I like to wake up. I like to wake up big. I like to smoke cannabis 24 seven. You know, and nowadays with with the potencies they have and um, the other stuff, like I got, you know, like probably about a year and a half ago, 18 months ago, I got like really into concentrate and dabbing and like rosin right. and stuff like that. And and I became like a dab head for, for like nine months. Like I was literally like I was getting up smoking like 75, 85 percent, you know, concentrate THC like all day, every morning. Like I couldn't even smoke weed. It wouldn't get me high. You know, I do the concentrates. And, uh, you know, after nine months of that, I mean, I was, I was really, I was kind of zombified and, and my wife is kind of looking at me, you know, being like, you know, like, what are you doing? And, you know, like anybody who's artistic, you know, when you, when you start abusing drugs, you know, because maybe stuff is not going your way or, you know, maybe you're not getting the deals you want, or maybe, you know, people are not giving the attention, you know, to your work that, that you want or that you need, you know, the recognition. So, uh. I actually stopped. I, I stopped smoking weed for like ten months. So you're off, you know, just weed because. Now? Well, actually, I I start. I, I am. I, I started again. See, this is weird. So this this is like that that addiction thing. So it's like you know, am I addict or am I just an extreme personality? You know, because because for me, it's not like, you know, I'm smoking weed and I'm going to be destitute and I'm going to be on the street like someone can get. You know, like on on heroin or or some of those harder drugs. You know, it takes you down those rabbit holes where your whole life just gets fucked up, you know? So, I mean, I, I've been able, you know, to, to maintain, you know, my lifestyle and, and work, even like I tell people, even as a stoner, I'm a super prolific stoner, right? A super productive stoner compared to most people. But I found out like when I leave the weed alone or especially the dabs, I mean, I'm like, I'm much more prolific. Like my, my biggest, my most productive periods in life have, have been when I've been, totally sober right you know so right. sometimes you know that works for me so sometimes i got to go back for that so even recently so i didn't smoke weed for 10 months because I, I had like a vicious nine month dab dab run where i was like you know like a fucking zombie the shit so then, is uh, hard I that, the the dab is like I, I i i'm a ridiculous stoner i was a ridiculous stoner and uh, and I I would smoke shattered whenever i could get it i would smoke whatever like i, I lived in new york and i and it was pre you know, all this shit when I was smoking, you know, I, I stopped smoking weed like seven years ago or something. So that's when all these concentrates were starting to really show up. And I, I took a hit. I, I was dabbing with a kid at work and I swear to God, I felt like I was like on heroin or acid. And I was walking home. I was like, I cannot believe how fucking high I am. It was like, it was shocking. Anyway, back to your story. No, but my wife used to come in sometime. Like she would come home you know, cause I, I'm a writer. So, you know, I'm a writer, you know, I make films. I just work from home, you know, or wherever I'm at. But, uh, like my wife would come home from work sometime, you know, she was working as a, a legal assistant and, and she, like, I would be so high on right. the dabs, like after dabbing, like all day long, like she would look at me, she like, she would think like I'm on some type of heavy narcotic. She's like, she's like, you know, she would ask me like, are you doing oxys? Right. You know, cause that's how like fucked up I was. So, you know, like I say, I stopped for 10 months and then I started smoking weed and I told myself, okay, I'm not going to dab. I'm just going to like smoke some good sativa, you know, like working weed or whatever, Sure. you know, and, uh, but then like a month 
I'm doing the dabs again. So I smoked dabs for like, and actually just like a week ago, I, I kind of checked myself and I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to go on another nine month dab run. So I, I stopped, you know? So I, I just have to realize like my limitations, you know, I mean, if, if I got $10 million in the bank, you know, whatever, a couple million dollars, you know, and I, and I got a lot of stuff going and I'm just trying to maintain it and I want to get blasted out of my head all day on dabs, you know, I can do that. But I've kind of come to the realization that uh, it's almost like when I want to do that, I got to set aside time. Like I got to be like, okay, for these two weeks, I'm just going to get blasted out of my head. You know, so I, I don't know. So I think I think I kind of straddle that that whole addiction thing because I, I don't like the addiction thing because that's what they try to put on me and that's what they try to blame for my whole case and everything. And I kind of feel justified now because weed is legal and psychedelics, you know, are, are being no looked at, you know, yeah. and studied. So, you know, I feel really justified, you know, and I, and I feel like they were trying to label me and put me in a box and saying when I was wrong, when even as a 17 year old man, I felt like I was right. You know, now looking back, I feel really justified. But at the same time, I'm an extreme person. I'm an extreme personality and anything you do too much, even if it's a exercise, right. it can is a problem. problem for you. And, and, and I go, I, I have like that, I, I, like a lot of people who become addicts or who people would say are addicts, I have that, uh, you know, that pendulum. I, I swing just, just back and forth, like whatever it is in my makeup, you know, I, 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 I swing back and forth. But, you know, being that person and having that chemistry of whoever I am, it allows me, you know, to reach the heights, you know, that, that I'm reaching now and, you know, the, the you know, I feel like I'm, I'm rising, I'm going to go higher. So it's just something I, I got to manage. You know, I, I don't always like to label, you know, stuff an addict because I think even even somebody like if you're hardcore on heroin or something, just, I mean, labeling somebody like an addict, it's really, it's dehumanizing. You know, it makes them like, like people say somebody's an addict. So it's like, okay, you can just discount them as a person. They're an addict. They fucked up. Just leave them in the fucking gutter. And I, I hate that. So that's why, you know, I don't really use that term. But yeah, I, I, at some points in my life, you know, I, I can say, you know, that I, I've abused drugs, you know, and and like I say, I'm uh, I love marijuana. So, you know, if I'm, I'm addicted to marijuana, I'm addicted to marijuana. But <laughs> I'm old enough now where, you know, I got some semblance of control, you know, well, at least I, I think so. The best thing about an addict for my money is is an addict decides if they're an addict or not. Like, I'm not deciding if you're an addict. I know that I'm an addict. Uh, and I know that I'm an addict because w usually if I put a mood or mind altering substance into my body, I wind up not being able to do anything I want. You know what I mean? Like the fact that you can do nine months of dabbing and be like, that was too much. I'm not going to do that. Chances are you're not an addict. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't want to take the chance. I like, I lost too much of my life to, to fucking heroin that, and I have kids and I don't want to put myself in a situation where I, I add something to the mix. Like maybe I can smoke weed and hang out and listen to the Almond Brothers and stuff, but maybe I can't and I don't want to take that fucking yeah. risk. Now, I know that you grew up as a, like a military kid. I never like to say army brat. I don't know why everyone feels so comfortable right. to say army brat. I'm going to say a military right. kid. Um, and you're going from spot to spot and you started, uh, you, you fell in love with weed in England. Is that the deal? Well, actually, well, San, San Jose first. So, uh, you know, I was in San Jose, but then shortly after I, I started smoking weed, like at the age of 13 in San Jose, I moved to England. And then um, when I went to England, 
Like it was all like the old school European hash. Like they didn't even have weed over there, you know, because it was all the hash coming from like the Middle East, you know, Afghanistan and stuff. Because so, they could move you know, that went, around easier, right? They can move yeah, the hash yeah. and they can't move the volume of bud because they could compress yeah. the hash and like that's why, right? Yeah. So I, I went, uh, you know, I went right from smoking like, you know, because early California, like in the early 80s, I mean, they were getting really good weed. You know, the Mexican brick pot didn't start coming until probably, you know, like the mid 80s, but. You know, like the early 80s, I was smoking like like Thai sticks, you know, like Maui, Waui, Colombian gold. They were bringing in really, really good weed. And I went right from that to England to smoking just like, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, Lebanese gold, like black Moroccan, just really, really good hash. And um, that kind of started my, my love affair, you know, with this, uh, you know, with this plant that has. And like, as I say, you know, because of the laws of our, our country, you know, in the drug war, you know, it's been. Uh, you know, it's been a detriment, but also at the same time, you know, I feel it's been a, a benefit to me in, in a lot of ways too. Oh man, weed, weed like saved my life in so many ways. Let me ask you a question though. A stupid question. Are you prepared for a stupid question? There was a, a moment of my life, right? Where I was, I was buying my bud in Central Park in New York city. And, and there was a kid who sold tie stick, but we called it, we all called it chocolate tie, right? And we had this idea in our head that it was actually chocolatey. Has there ever been an actual chocolate tie that tasted a little bit chocolatey? Yeah, I think so. I think I used to remember people calling it chocolate tie. So I, I don't know. I don't know if it was marketing or or whatever back then. But no, I do. I do recall, you know, people talking about chocolate tie. I, I can't re remember like a specific time, you know, I smoked it where I thought like, oh, this tastes like chocolate. But, uh, you know, I, I, I do remember that. And, you know, that brings up a, another thing, um, you know, with that, that chocolate thing, like in the marketing of drugs. So when I, know I was a fugitive, I, I know what you're going to say. Yeah. The mescaline. When I was a fugitive. Yeah. So yeah. when I was a fugitive, I was down in Texas, you know, and um, I, I was selling weed and stuff. And so uh, the Mexican dude that I was getting the brick weed from, he, he had some mescaline and he and he gave me the he gave me the mescaline. And I and I took it, you know, and and. And I told all these people, you know, he told me, yeah, I'll break it up like this, sell it for this amount, whatever. So I took it and I was trying to sell it to all my weed customers. And they kept telling me, like, I was showing it to them. I was like, I got mescaline. And they're looking at me, you know, they're looking at it and they're like, no, we want chocolate mess. I'm like, chocolate mess? I'm like, what the, I'm like, this is mescaline. I just got it. What are you talking about chocolate mess? I don't know what the fuck that is. <laughs> so I call the Mexican dude. And I'm like, all these people, they don't want the fucking mescaline. I go, what the fuck? You gave me this shit I can't even sell. He goes, they're asking me for chocolate mess. I go, I need chocolate mess. And so he's like, uh, he's like, dude, all you got to do, he goes, go to the store. He goes, buy some uh, Nestle's quick, you know, some Nestle's chocolate, you know, for, for the milk. And he goes, just mix that in. He goes, cut it with that. So I did that and, you know, and, and bagged it, rebagged it all up and cut it with that. And then it all sold. So it's like weird. Mark, you, know, just, you, you want to hear something tie. fucked up though, Seth? I had, uh, you know, Nikki Six from Motley Crue. Um, mm -hmm. I had Nikki Six on the show. And he like claimed that he invented fucking chocolate mescaline. What do you think about that? Nikki six in like Seattle. Yeah, I, <laughs> I love that. Shit. Yeah. I don't know, so, man. Yeah. yeah it's Did he unlikely. do the same way? Like I said, did he do yeah, the same way I said? It, yeah. And he, and yeah. he, he, he kind of <laughs> said it like he came up with it. Um, but who knows? It's a funny story. I'm just glad that somebody yeah. else sold chocolate mescaline, and I'm glad that it's the same story. It's in Nikki Six's new book that he did that as a kid, sold the chocolate mescaline. Okay. And he, it's just yeah, that's, funny. Yeah, that's, 
yeah no it's, it's it's crazy man how uh you know especially like you know in the in the you know whatever you want to call it black market traditional market you know underground for drugs like you know all these different ways that people market stuff and, and come up with different ways you know to entice customers or whatever you know same thing they do in the mainstream you know with all the commercials but it, it's just weird when you look at the history and how all this stuff kind of evolved it's amazing. It's the same exact thing. It's it's perfect. Like the fact that like chocolate tie, Lebanese gold, the stamp on the fucking hash. Like if you got hash with a stamp on it, you were like, oh, that's the fucking stuff because it had the stamp yeah. and the stamp or, or bags on fucking heroin or or, or the, the stamp on a on blotter. Right. It's all that shit. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and the better the marketing, the better the product moves. Right. Oh, no, definitely. I mean, you see that today in the legal cannabis market with cookies. I mean, you know, cookies is this big, huge brand out of California. You know, it's going national and international. And they they just started off with, you know, if you're, you know, listen to stuff for burner, like they would say like they had good weed and they would smoke it. And that's what was like. They'd be like, you got the cookies, you know, and that just meant like good weed, you know, and then it evolved into this brand. And now they're like, you know. Now they're like probably the, the biggest weed brand in the world. Right. I, I you know, I saw cookies uh, years ago. I thought it was just a fashion brand. I thought it was like a t-shirt company. It's a weed brand. Huh? I didn't even know that. You see? Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're huge, man. They're huge. They're everywhere. They're, they're pretty much, they're, they're one of the biggest companies, you know, are, are weed corporations right now in the whole U S you know, they're branching out in all the, all the medical States, you know, and it, wow. it's, it's just, it's different weed. Because, you know, I mean, they might give them the seeds, but it's grown by different people in different states, you know, because you can't import, export, you know, weed in the United States. But it's just it's just a brand, man. It's just some marketing. When did you become an entrepreneur? Like, when did you start dealing? I'd say probably, you know, around 15, I got more serious. So, you know, I, I started I started smoking weed at 13. Then we moved to England. And, um, you know, at first it was like, you know, I, I was just a kid, you know, and we would want to party, you know, like on the weekend. So we'd get some weed, we'd get some alcohol. And um, it ended up, you know, I, I was a person, you know, I was the only person that really had like the, uh, you know, the balls, you know, to, to go down in the town and deal with like the Jamaican dudes in England and, and buy the hash, you know, because all the other white military kids or not just white, but, you know, whatever, black Spanish military kids, too. They, they didn't want to go down there and deal with them. So. You know, eventually, like, everybody would give me the money. They'd be like, oh, you're going to go score? You're going to go score? So I'd go score. So at first, you know, I would just score for everybody and give them their stuff, and I'd put my own stuff. But I quickly figured out that, hey, if I'm the one going to get the stuff, you know, I can get, you know, free drugs. So, you know, it kind of evolved from that. You know, first I was like, okay, you know, like 13, 14. You know, I was like, I could get free drugs. And then by 15, it was like, you know, I can make money off this and get free drugs. You know, and then, then, yeah, then it just, it just kept growing. And then when, when I came back to the States, you know, it, it just, it just turned in, you know, to something more and just kind of, you know, snowballed into this really big thing that by probably like, you know, 1989, I was, I was selling, uh, I was supplying like 15 colleges in five States on the East coast with uh weed at LSD. How did you get into the LSD racket? Well, I was always curious, you know, about, I was always curious about hallucinogens. So, you know, um, you know, I, I'd say like that age, like 13, 15, I, I experimented a lot. I experimented with a lot of drugs. Like I never did heroin, but you know, I did Coke, 
you know, just some speed. I didn't really like those because I'm kind of hyper anyhow. So those kind of drugs kind of make me, uh, they don't, you know, I'm an extrovert already. So they kind of make me an introvert, you know, when I me do too. drugs like that. You know, me I'm more, too. yeah, I'm like, I like more like downer stuff, me you know, too. hallucinogens. But, uh, you know, I started experimenting with like mushrooms, you know, and then LSD and then always like from seeing the stuff about peyote and movies like with the indians you know you always see like the cowboy movies and they got the indians i think they, they had the big one uh was it? it was young guns right you know young guns in the yeah, late yeah. 80s yeah, and they yeah. you know they do the peyote and stuff and I, I was like really i was like man that stuff was it was so cool so i started experimenting with that stuff and then when i moved back to the states some of my uh you know some of my 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 older uh relatives that were in Virginia where we moved, you know, they were following the Grateful Dead. So, you know, I would get weed from them and, you know, they always had acid. And then I started following the Grateful Dead. And, um, yeah, I just really, you know, got in. I, I mean, I tripped a lot, you know, before I went to prison. I, I always tell people I probably tripped like a thousand times, you know, before the age of 22. You know, I, right. I took a lot of acid. I, uh, I took acid before I ever smoked pot. And the first time I took acid was at a dead show. Uh, in like 91 at Madison Square Garden. Um, and I, I and, and I'm, you know, I sold acid in college, but never on like the scope that you did. I, I would sell a sheet and, and, you know, I'd spend 50 bucks on a sheet and make 500 and be like, this is amazing. And me and my friend would get by yeah, yeah. because we, because we made, we had this money for a couple months, you know, and we'd keep the doses in like the back of the CD. You know what I mean? Like you could peel the back off the CD and you keep doses there. No one's going to find it. And it was the greatest yeah. drug business that I, because I wasn't going to do all of it. It's too much, and it's too crazy to do yeah, all that yeah. acid. Um, I know you weren't a big deadhead, though. So tell me how you got into the dead universe, because I love uh, the scene. I love hearing about the scene. I was never really in the scene. I wound up falling in love with the music later on. I was just like a New York City Jew who like was here and there, and, and I loved seeing the hippies, and I loved... I probably loved similar things that you did. Like, tell me about how you got into it and, and how the business kind of amped up. Yeah. So, I mean, first I'm just getting stuff, you know, from, uh, you know, my, my older relative, cause him and his crew, they kind of like, like some of his buddies were like, you know, on tour and stuff like that. And they would send stuff by and they had like a little, you know, retail market in, uh, you know, Fairfax, Virginia. So, you know, first I, I, I started going down to Kentucky and, and, and getting a lot of weed and I was getting people to send me like, uh, you know, like Emerald Triangle, like Humboldt County Bud, you know, every fall. And I, I made a lot of money on that, you know, well, not a lot of money, but, you know, as a, as a kid, you know, I was I was, you know, making 10, 20, 30 grand or whatever. So, uh, you know, to me at that time, that was that was a ton of money. Sure. And um, then I was like, people were always asking for acid and, you know, my 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 relatives that were doing it i mean they had some but they they couldn't really give me a lot you know i mean i could buy a couple sheets from them but you know they were probably only getting like five ten sheets at a time so as i had this money i was like you know and i really like this drug i really i really liked lsd i was like man i want to i want to kind of you know almost like the uh you know the the, the t timothy leary thing you know tune in turn in drop out i was like man i want to make this available to people i want to expand people's minds you know this you know so you were like I an just, emissary, an LSD missionary. Yeah, I always tell, I tell people now all the time. I tell people now, I was like, I was a cannabis LSD advocate. You know, I mean, they call me a criminal, but I, I, I was an ad advocate. I was an activist. You know, I was just kind of before my time. So when I, I was talking to my, 
you know, older relative who I was getting it from. And I was like, man, I need, I want to get, you know, I need to get more. I'm like, you know, hook me up. He's like, man, go on tour, man, go on tour. You can get a contact, you know? So that's what I did. I, I went on tour and I hooked up with some of his friends that were on tour, you know, and they led me to the right people. And, uh, yeah, so I, I was totally attracted to the Grateful Dead scene because, because of, of the drugs. Cause to me, like when you went to the lot, it was like a, a, a open air drug market almost. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, like the, yes. the, the, the mid to late eighties and I, I developed the contacts, you know, and then I got it so I could just mail order it like right from San Francisco. Like I, I could just, you know, beat this dude, you know, back then we had like the 1-800 beepers. That was like, you know, this was before cell phones. So we had the 1-800 beepers. So I could just beep a dude, you know, call him pay phone to pay phone, you know, put my order in the, and they would mail me like a hundred sheets, you know, Did and you I, have I would to, actually, like, become... I would wire them the money. Did you have to become like an undercover hippie? Did you have to be like, yo, that Scarlet Fire was amazing? You know, like, did you have no, to like No, learn? no, no, I, I, I never did, man. You know, because uh, I've, I've always been like what, what I consider, uh, you know, like, like a man's man. You know, like I'm a straight shooter. You know, I don't, I don't have any problem with confrontation. You know, I, I can go right to people, you know, tell them who I am, what I am. Yeah, so I, I never, I never felt the need plus... I was already in because my 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 relatives friends were like they'd been on tour they were on the scene like they were like that hardcore deadheads you know that used to follow them everywhere so you know i came right with them so you know it was really you know accepted and really i was like uh, uh at that time you know because i was in fairfax virginia so i always think back like i, I was kind of like a, uh i was kind of like preppy but you know i was kind of like like what you might have called back then like a, like a sloppy prep you know what I'm saying? Like, like, so I, I might wear like polos and stuff like that. But, you know, at the same time, I wore Birkenstocks. You had like a Bob you know, Weir so, vibe. Yeah, yeah. Back so I, I, I was, I was kind of, you know, I had like that East Coast kind of college look. Right, right, right. But, you know, I was on tour. And, and like I say, I was a man's man. So, you know, I was I was aggressive in, in, in what I wanted. You know, so I, I had no problem going right to people. And sometimes I, they might be like, well, who are you? But then they would check and... I'm with these people who are on tour. So, you know, I check, I would check out. So they'd be like, okay, we can do business with you. So you never had to fake being a hardcore hippie or deadhead. No, nah. you never said that cosmic Charlie was killer last night, bro. Nothing like that. <laughs> Did you go to the shows? I, at, yeah, I would go to the shows really at first. I, I the whole music thing, I, um, cause of some of the people I even had like some girlfriends, like they were like, like seriously into the music. And I, I never really understood it at first. But then later, after a couple of years, I, I, I had a, a girlfriend that I dated for about nine months. And uh, she was older than me. She was like four years older than me. And she was like a hardcore deadhead. Uh, she actually, you know, eventually became like a heroin addict, a, a real bad heroin addict. Because a lot of the deadheads back then were heroin addicts, too. But sure. um, she started giving me these tapes. Because, you know, I was a drug smuggler. So I was driving like all around the East Coast. So she gave me like all these tapes, like of the live shows. And so probably for about two years... You know, driving around, I, I listened to all these, you know, tapes. So, you know, I kind of had my little phase where I got nice. into the music. But, I mean, really, my, my type of music, I like, you know, I like metal. I like rap. I like punk. You know, I like I like more aggressive, you know, type of music. Well, I, I, I think it cracks me up. You know what I mean? Like, I like the uh, kind of anachronistic LSD advocate on dead scene, but still, like, you know, it sounds like you're in it for the money, but you're also in it for the culture, but not necessarily the dead culture, more the freedom culture. 
Yeah, you, I, I consider myself basically like uh, I was a champion, you know, of, of the counterculture. You know, I, I was like, man, people want this stuff. I'm, I'm going to give it to them. And, and I didn't give a fuck about the drug war. I didn't give a fuck what my parents say. I didn't give a fuck about what mainstream media or the government or law enforcement said. You know, I was kind of like, you know, almost like, uh, you know, like the rebel without without a cause. But, you know, I had a cause and, and my cause was uh, psychedelics and cannabis. Right. And how did you get busted? Like, what? how how big did you get and how did it all go down? Yeah, so I got, um, probably, I, I mean, I, I got pretty big, like, like on the East Coast, you know, probably like around 89, 90, you know, 91, you know, when I, when I caught my case, like a lot of people, I mean, like they knew who Seth was, you know, like I could walk like, uh, you know, I was kind of like a, a mythical figure, you know, in that, in that drug world at all these colleges. You know, because people knew when I came to town, you know, that I was bringing the kind bud and th that I was bringing, you know, the really good acid, you know. So, uh, but that's what, I mean, I'd say at my height, I mean, I was probably making, you know, 20, 30,000 a month. But this was only like, uh, you know, I had, I had like a nine month run where I was doing that before I got busted. You know, every, everything was building up to that point. And I got to the point like maybe in 1990 where I was like, man, I was like, you know, because before I'm just partying, you know, I'm paying for everybody. I'm kind of doing, you know, all this stuff and kind of just, you know, being the rock star, the center of the tension, you know, because of the money and the drugs. And then like around 1990, I was like, man, like I can make a lot of money. You know, I had I, my ambition. I wanted to become a cash millionaire, you know, so probably like when I was 19, I set out. I was like, man, I'm going to become a cash millionaire, you know, and then I'm going to get out. That was my plan. You know, I was really motivated by money. But uh, so I had like a little nine month run, you know, but then, you know, with the with the height of the war on drugs and, um, you know, that was like the time too, like 91, they started going out to the suburbs because before with all those drug laws, they were just busting, you know, like the, the African-American dudes like in the city for crack. That's really why they formed all those laws. But then after incarcerating the African-Americans for like, you know, three years straight when these drugs started, then, you know, I guess they were getting a lot of complaints you know, that it was racist, which it was. And then, uh, you know, so to try to deflect, you know, the, the racist intention, you know, of these drug laws, they said, oh, well, we're going to go out to the suburbs. We bust white drug dealers, too. So I was in that first wave in, in 91 right. when they first started going out to the suburbs, you know, and, and getting people for like weed and, and acid. Right. And um, how, I, I want to get to the bus, but I'm just realizing I want to hear more about where the acid actually came from. Like, I, I've heard about, you know, dead uh, family acid people and like, and I've seen so much different acid in my own life, but I've seen, I know I've seen so little compared to what was actually out there. Like who, like, and I don't need names, but like, how do you get into a dead family acid family thing? And how does that even get structured? And like, what did the, like, what kind of doses were you selling? What did it look like and stuff? And did you ever have liquid acid in bottles and drop acid in your eyes? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I did that, and we used to do like sugar cubes, and um, I was getting mostly like uh, MC Escher prints, right? You know, so the you know that that was a big thing I was getting, and at, at that time too, they were doing like a lot of just like the uh, you know the white blotter too because they didn't want to have you know because they were busting the prints and they were tracking it to certain people, so a right. lot of people were just putting out the the, the white stuff, but uh, yeah, I saw like a lot of blue unicorns, you know, the Bart Simpsons, and um. Yeah, basically, like, I had I had a connection who was like a hardcore deadhead. He was on tour, 
and he was like he was like in, in one like what they call the, the the families you know the grateful dead families which you know i mean there, there's a ton of them it's just like little you know loose affiliations of people that do business together and uh you know so he's in the families so it's like you know i, I got my buddy he's in the families and then and then they got the chemists and a, a lot of the chemists a lot of it still it's all centered like around san francisco you know as it has been you know since the 60s so you know basically like there's these chemists and they feed all these families and then they got these people in the families and, and they would go on tour and sell it you know like i remember being at shows and like they're flying like 25 grams you know of crystal in you know but then once they get it there then you know they got they got to lay it they got to get the blotter like sometimes you would be on the lot and you know i'm trying like my main objective is not the music my main objective is drugs so i'd be on the lot and i'd be trying to get you know like like 100 sheets which is basically you know like 10,000 hits and they'd be like well the crystals here they flew 25 grams of crystal in but uh we we got to get the, the blotter paper's not here yet you know because also the blotter paper you just couldn't buy it anyway they would have to specially make it and ship that in too so then they would have to get it and then they would have to lay it you know and then you could you know you could actually get it so that's why eventually like with my buddy instead of going on tour i'm like man just uh i want to do like a mail order you know so they hooked that up where i could just call someone and they would just mail it wherever i wanted i could get it mailed anywhere i could get 100 sheets they would put it like right in an overnight envelope and ship it right like that but that's that's kind of uh that's kind of how it went so you know like like i knew some dudes you know they'd be like oh this dude's family like on the lot or stuff so, so you knew who the big dudes were and there there were actually uh you know they had dudes like they had a dude like cosmic charlie you know he passed now you know but uh you know they had like cosmic charlie they they had fast eddie he, he's passed too but they had all these dudes like you knew they were the big dudes on the lot but at the same time you had you, these dudes that you knew were the big dudes on the lot you heard you heard about the dudes that you never saw like you heard you heard about the chemists you know but the chemists were never around but you just heard and and to me these were like these mystical magical wizards like almost like wizards yeah like yeah. sorcerers yeah. you know dudes dudes like leonard picard you know or like bear stanley owsley you know sure. the, these dudes that were you know that were the the well-known chemists and it and it was like it was too because it was a total outlaw culture like you know you didn't even you didn't say those people's names back then like people would talk about <clears> them and you knew who we were talking about but you didn't say their names because of the law enforcement scrutiny you know and then it was also like you didn't take pictures you know, and you 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 always have like a nickname, you know, or something. You know, I was always known as Seth, but you know, never nobody ever knew my last name. You know, but a lot of the dudes like you didn't even know their 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 government, their first or their last name. You know, right. they'd be like, like they'd be like, you know, drummer Al, you know, or or all these different names, and you know, like like I said, like Fast Eddie, Cosmic Charlie, but you knew the dudes who were basically, uh, you know, the the head dudes on the lot and. You know, I, I not like I was doing business with them, but, you know, I would see them around. They would see me around. They might know more about me than I know about them, you know, because a lot of times, you know, just like law enforcement is doing investigations on people on that scene. The people in that scene that are, are controlling the flow of the acid, they're doing investigations on all the people that are going to. And as I started getting more and more and doing like 100 sheets a month, you know, like, they, you know, then I put myself on, on their radar you know, so they would watch me. So if anything came back to them, you know, like through my system, you know, just basically, you know, clean, cleaning their house or, or making sure everything's kosher so nobody would get busted. Right. And uh, I'm sure back in the day, like when, when Owsley 
was making acid and, and like he's taking so much of the acid and the acid's in the air that it's affecting the way he's thinking. And there's a certain level of, of evolution of the brain from taking that many psychedelics and then paranoia. So it's like, yeah, I'm going to call myself bear or like, I'm going to call myself this. And like, and, and you know, those stories are amazing. Like, did you ever read the Owsley yeah. Stanley book? It's so fucking good. Did you read that book? It's like, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, I did. I did. Yeah. yeah, so actually, you know, one of the one of the docu series that I'm working on now, the one that we're gonna we're gonna premiere like the first act, like the first 20 minutes on Bicycle Day 419 in, in San Francisco at the Midway. Um, you know, we, we're actually like I I am working with his one of his uh you know one of his women like his partners Romy Stanley right? who actually yeah yeah so she's like she's an executive producer on the film she's giving me a ton of access but um. Yeah, so we're we're gonna tell we're gonna recount all you know Bear's story, you know the brotherhood, and a lot of these stories have been told in different mediums in different places. But I think uh, I'm the first person like I'm putting it all together. It's all gonna be you know three films, nine acts, and I'm gonna tell it all the way from Albert Hoffman all the way to now. What's going on now with kind of uh, you know the rebirth of of psychedelics, you know, because that's what they they you know before it was made illegal. And we went in kind of like this 50 year, you know, drug war and, and forcing it underground. You know, that's what there's all these people like, like Roni, you know, Carolyn Mountain Gar Girl Garcia, you know, Leonard Picard, you know, Mark McLeod from the Blotter Barn. I mean, they were all around back then. And, and their thing was they wanted to make a lot of acid because their thing was world peace. You know, this was right. like in the summer of love, Vietnam going on. And they yeah. thought that's what their thing. They wanted to make enough acid to dose everybody in the whole world because right. they thought it would lead to world peace. That was their objective, you know? So, and then it got kind of sidetracked, you know, and, and vilified and all the bad press with like bad trips. Even like when I was growing up, you hear like, oh, you see pink elephants, people, you know, thinking they can fly. I mean, that that was like, if 1% of the time, if that. Right. You it's know what I'm saying? But also, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's like they're, they're, they're scared of, I mean, like, you, I'm sure you've seen a lot of it. I know I've seen a lot of people like I, I, we always say they were psychedelically traumatized. If you had a friend that took too much acid and they just wound up like they weren't the same, you know, that happened, you know, you could get great ideas on psychedelics and you could also be psychedelically traumatized. You know, both things were possible. Yeah. You know, I never heard about anybody jumping off a, a building except in that dragnet, that famous sixties dragnet episode. I'm sure that's in the movie, right? Uh, did you, yeah, did you yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I'm a big fan of all this stuff and I think it's so cool that you're making this epic, uh, film series, but I don't want to get sidetracked from your crazy story. What was the bust? How did you get busted? What happened? Yeah. So, um, I mean, basically the, the, the summer of 91, you know, cause back then it would always get dry, like every summer for the weed, you know what I'm saying? Cause weed was usually around like, you know, harvest time in the fall, the good weed coming from California yeah. or Kentucky. And then the Mexican bud, we you know would be the rest of the year, but then, you know, somebody by the summer, it would get dry. Like you couldn't find any weed, you know? So it was the summer of 91 and it was one of those cases where, I mean, there was no weed around and all my friends from colleges, they were all back in Fairfax. And, you know, my, my whole thing was like, I was always building up for the fall because I made more money off weed. I, I really did make a lot of money off of LSD. You know, I, I made the money off the weed. So I was always trying to build up my capital so the fall so I could go down there and buy a bunch of weed and then, you know, make like $1,000 a pound. So 
that's what I was doing. You know, I, my, I'd spent a lot of money. So my, I went to Hawaii for like two months and just stayed in Hawaii and I blew a lot of money. So I was like, man, I got to uh, I got to get my money back up for the fall for harvest. So I basically flooded Fairfax County. You know, I had all these dudes that dealt at all these colleges for me and they're all back in Fairfax. And so I, I flooded it. I actually I think that summer, you know, like when I first started dealing with acid, it might be like ten, fifteen dollars hit, and then it got down, you know, to like you know around eighty eight, eighty nine, where it was like five dollars hit. But then that summer, like ninety one, when everybody was back in Fairfax County, I pump was pumping so much acid into that area that like it went down to like two dollars a hit, right? You know, because there was like, yeah, there there was Supply like supply demand so much acid, right? And how my case started was uh, you know, they they were having this big field party in this area called Clifton you know, in, in Fairfax County, it's kind of like where they had like million dollar houses and, and a lot of politicians live there, you know, a lot of professional sports players, you know, and, and stuff like that, or rich businessmen, they lived out in this real exclusive area called Clifton. And they had these big houses that had a lot of land. So, you know, like we do in the suburbs, you know, when the parents go out, the kids have parties. So these one people, they had this big field party, and they brought like skate ramps and they had like a stage and bands and everything. And it was like this whole weekend party while the, while the uh, person's parents were gone. And we, it was flooded with acid. Like I think of that part, we, we were just brought sheets and we were just giving stuff out. We we're like, here, you know what I'm saying? And um, then eventually, you know, whatever the neighbors called the cops, because even though it was a big field, we were making a lot of noise. So the cops come and there was like a young kid that was tripping. I think he was only 15 at the time. And, uh, you know, he was tripping really bad. So he was like, like running around naked or something. So the cops saw him, the cops started chasing him, you know, and, and, uh, they tackled him and somehow, you know, he freaked out and he grabbed the cop's gun out of his holster and he shot the cop, you oh know, in God. the arm. Yeah. He shot the cop in the arm and he was so tripping once. Yeah. So once that happened, you know, like whatever, like they arrested him and, and, you know, he cooperated with him and told him who he got it from. And the person who he got it from was actually someone that was probably like seven people removed from me. Right. But, you know, but, but he knew about me and stuff like that. You know, he, he knew my name and stuff. So, uh, you know, they basically did a witch hunt, you know, because, uh, I mean, like, like the cop got shot. I mean, he didn't get killed or anything. You know, I don't, I don't know if it was a, uh, you know, a flesh wound or if it broke some bones or whatever, but, you know, whenever you do something against law enforcement in the country, they come down hard. So, you know, they brought in the DEA. They had like this LSD witch hunt. You know, they started busting everybody and everybody kept saying my name. They kept hearing my name, Seth, 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 Seth. And so eventually they got people close enough to me. And um, some of my friends got set up in a sting, like on a state sting, and they cooperated. And then uh, I got indicted federally. So like in August, like, the, August got, of your name was mentioned in the indictment. And then, and then what, yeah. where did they come get you? Like, what was that situation? Oh yeah. They, I mean, yeah, they basically, it came, it came and arrested me, you know, at, at my house, you know, searched my parents' house, you know, they, they, they busted this other kid with 120 sheets and he told him it was mine. Mm -hmm. And you know, I mean, really it was, it, really, it was mine. I brought it in. You know, but but he got busted with that, and then uh, they brought me in. So I was arrested on a state case first, and then as they kept investigating, and you know, and got more cooperators. You know, they pushed it federal. You know, and then that's when they started saying I was like the Fairfax County LSD kingpin, and you know, 
And like I say, I'm not. I'm not saying I, I, I was moving a lot of drugs, but you know what they made me. I, I was. I wasn't a kingpin. Man. I was. I was just a kid. You know, a kingpin is somebody like you know Pablo Escobar. You know, El Chapo. El Chapo. Yeah. You're yeah, a fucking yeah, kid. So, You're a kid who happens to have like crazy acid connections. And and at the time yeah. was that when like it was like a hit is a felony. Was it that whole thing? Oh yeah, yeah. It was. It was crazy. I mean, that was the, the feds had all the conspiracy laws. So. uh you know, actually, in my case, I got like a kingpin charge. I got like a CCE. It's like a RICO act. So right. that's like, I mean, that's like stuff they use for like, uh, you know, uh, Manuel Noriega. Yeah. Noriega. Yeah, yeah. So right. it was crazy. just. And you're 21 yeah, years so they, old, 22? I was 20. I was 20. 20 years old. In 91, old. I was 20 years old. And right. and they tried to make it seem like I had this big organization. And I didn't have any organization. I mean, you know, you, you, were, in, you were in college. You know how the drug trade, you know, worked in colleges. It was just I was a dude with the best connections, you know, but I was I was freelance, you know, and, and basically most people I fronted almost everything. You know, I would front and come back and collect the money. You know, I, I, that's what I used to drive around to all the colleges. You know, I, I, I had like a little route. I would go I would go down to Virginia. Then I would come up into Kentucky and then I would go to West Virginia. You know, then I would come through Pennsylvania and then I would come down in Maryland and I would hit all the colleges. And I had friends at every colleges and I would just drop off, you know, every college, 10, 20 sheets you know, five, 10 pounds of weed. And, and like I said before, I made all my money on the weed. You know, the acid, I was probably paying 25, 30 cents a hit. Right. You know, so for like 100 sheets, 100 sheets for me was probably like three grand. And I was selling for like, you know, maybe 80, 90 cents a hit. Right. So, you know, I was making for 100 sheets, I was maybe making like five, six grand, you know, which was peanuts because on the weed, I mean, I was making, you know, $800,000 a pound on the weed. Wow. You know, so if, so if I had if I had 20 pounds of weed, you know, I was making a killing. Right. And the bud was good. Good bud? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was getting, well, I got mostly the, the kind bud. You know, I used to get, so that, you know, but the kind bud would only be in the fall. So I, I had contacts with farmers down in Kentucky, and I had contacts with, with some of my homeboys in San Francisco, like deadheads that used to get the weed out of Humboldt County. So, you know, they, they would just mail it to me. You know, so I would mail and I would drive down to Kentucky and then the rest of the year, you know, because the, 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 the harvest, you know, the kind bud would usually run out by like December, January, you know, and it would start going up too, because like September, it might be like twelve, fifteen hundred dollars a pound. And then by January, it'd be like four or five grand a pound as it got less. And then the rest of the year, I would just go get the uh, I would go get the Mexican brick pot out of Texas. You know, I, I would I would drive down there. Or I would drive down to uh, Fort Myers, Florida. You know, and get like whatever, you know, 50, 100. I used to fly down. I used to fly down to Texas too, Dallas, Texas. And I would put like 50, 50, 75 pounds like in a, a big green Samsonite, you know, old school 1970s, uh, you know, suitcase. Yeah. And I would, I would check it. I would check it and, and fly it right back, you know, to like the DC, uh, you know, DC National and just go pick it up off the carousel. It's funny because it's like all this stuff is making me think of the old High Times magazine and the, and the Bud review in the back and you know Kind Bud. You know what I mean? Like just I I, I used to think it was such a a joke until I fell in love with Kind Bud. So I love to hear you. Talk yeah, yeah. No, that, um, yeah, that's what we called it, the Kind Bud. Yeah. That was it. Yeah, that I remember the first Bud that I smoked that was considered Kind Bud. There was a kid at our school who got uh, Silver Haze in Ithaca. And I was, and, and he was like, we got the kind bud and, and he got busted and they gave us a, like a pound cause he needed to get rid of the butt. Um, and then we all got busted. <laughs> it was terrible. But, yeah. um, I want to know, 
after all that shit happened, how did you become a fugitive? What was that connection story? Because that seems like the craziest thing of all. Yeah, well, you know, I was facing, I was basically facing like like twenty to life, and and I was twenty years old, and and um, I mean, I thought what I was doing was right. So I mean, it was it was like a big eye opener. You know, I wasn't really hip to the war on drugs. You know, I was in the suburbs, so you know, I didn't, I wasn't like dealing crack or, or cocaine or heroin. So you know, I I didn't think any of that all pertained to me. You know, and plus I I was a nonviolent first time, you know, offender. So uh. You know, like I said, I've, I've always been like a real uh, forward thinking, you know, bold, brash, you know, aggressive type of personality. How that's my personality. So I, I was kind of like, man, fuck this. I'm not I'm not going to jail for 20 to life. You know, I had a little bit of money. And I remember, you know, from being in that area in, 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 in Fairfax since like, you know, since around 86, like since I was about 15, that, um. You know, because back then they had, you know, it was newspapers back then. It wasn't all digital. This was before the internet and everything. And I was like an avid sports fan. So we would get the Washington Post and I would always go right to the sports section. But sometimes when you go to the sports section, the metro section was right before the sports section. So sometimes I might see the headlines on the, on the metro section. And I remember they would always report these suicides. People come in suicides in this national park called Great Falls because they had, they had the Potomac River. And there was like an area where it was like what they call class five rapids, which like only the only like the super professional people would like even kayak there, you know, but people would always jump in the water there and commit suicide. Because if you jumped in the water, you're either going to get smashed against the rocks or you're going to drown because you can't swim because, you know, of the rapids. So this was always like lingered in my mind. So then when I decided, you know, I'm like, man, I'm not going to do 20 to life. I'm like, man, fuck these motherfuckers. I got some money. You were waiting I'm going to take case. off. You're, they, they, they bust you and then they let you out to wait for the case, right? For sentencing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're no, like, I, I'm I ended fucking, up, I, right. You're like, I got to disappear before I get the sentence. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, man. And, and you know, at that time too, I, I tell people they didn't have the movie at that time, but I had read the book, the, the book that catch me if you can is yeah. based on like yeah, that yeah. book came out like, uh, you know, like mid eighties or something. So I had actually read that book, you know, probably like two years before this happened, Amazing you know, so story, I, I was kind of like, yeah, I was kind of like, man, I was like, man, I don't, I don't want to face this. And then like, I was given two choices basically, you know, like they were like, you know, go to trial and face 20 to life or they were like cooperating already a bunch of almost pretty much almost all my friends from high school, you know, gave information and, and cooperated against me. So I was like, man, I, I'm not going to do this. You know, I'm not the type of person I can't look in the mirror you know what I'm saying? If I'm going to, you know, this is my problem. I'm not going to bring more people into it to get out of it, you know? So I was like, man, fuck this. I'm going to take off. I saw that as my only option, you know? I mean, when you're 20 years old and you're looking at 20 to life, you know, tell on all your friends, you know, taking off and become a fugitive seemed like the best option to me. So that's what I did. I, I staged my suicide. I faked my suicide in, in Great Falls. And then, then I took off. I took off to California and when I was in, I was in LA. Wait, hold and, you on. Know, I was going how down. did you tell the story of how you faked the suicide though? All right. So what I did is, uh, I, I mean, basically I just, I just like made a scene. Like I went off the trail, you know, like on the cliffs, you know, and I put my jacket, you know, I, I put my wallet with my ID, you know, I had like half a bottle of vodka, you know, and I had like some cigarettes and I, I just made it seem like I was just on the cliff. And then, you know, I, I jumped in and I had my car there and I had a suicide note in my car. 
And um, then I just waited, you know, because it was like like hiking trails, so people would always walk by. So I waited until I saw this couple came by, and like I ran out, you know, and all frantic. And I was like, my friend jumped, my friend jumped. You wow. know, and then I took off, and I had somebody else pick me up, and they took me right to the airport. And those people, I guess they found the scene. They called the park rangers. So um, when I got to L.A., you know, I, th- I thought I made it. Because my whole idea was if I'm after, if they don't find a body for seven years, then my parents can have de- me declared legally dead. Once I'm declared legally dead, the case against Seth Ferrante, it's gone. You know, and I can become whoever. You know, and I had been studying like a lot, of, a lot of stuff. I'd been reading a lot of different books about IDs. You know, and I'd been watching like a lot of the fugitive shows. You know, like America's Most Wanted, Unsolved Mysteries, because I, I was studying like how different people had done stuff. And I saw that a lot of people had been fugitives. You know, for like sometimes 25, 30 years. Sometimes they never found them. So I was like, you know, these people aren't any smarter than me. I can, I can do this too. And I just have to become somebody else. But um, how scary what was I that did it, period. Like, how scary was was before sentencing, fucking faking your own death? You know, did your parents think you were dead? No, I had my friend who drove me to the airport. I had him go tell my mom, you know, what was up. So she she knew. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think it was as scary because it, like, it was like an adrenaline. Sometimes when, like, you're in these situations, it's just like, this is what you got to do. So I wasn't scared. I was just, like, like amped up on adrenaline, you know, like, like I got to get away. You know, I got to escape. So, you know, like it was an my, adventure my too, was right? the it was an exciting adventure. Oh, you yeah, were yeah, yeah. This, this hero in your head, like that you would love this whole outlaw thing. This is it. You know, like th- nothing is more outlaw than being a fugitive. You know, like that's, that's pretty crazy. Like faking your own death. Yeah. So, but, but the only thing that, that, you know, cause, cause like I say, I, I was abusing, I was abusing LSD. I was abusing weed. Even at this time I was abusing alcohol a lot, you know? Um, I've never been a big alcohol guy, but this was like one time, like I was, I was drinking like a 12 pack of, uh, you know, like bass ale every night, you know, kind of drowning my sorrows or whatever. So, um, you know, like I said, I, I thought I, w- I had this super, you know, foolproof, you know, idea, and, you know, I was so smart and made all these plans, but you know, I, I fucked up in one way because where I staged my suicide, I did it on the wrong side of the dam. So as I'm in L.A., I'm reading the papers, you know, from the Washington Post. I'm going down to the newsstand every day, and I'm, I'm getting the Washington Post, and I'm reading, and they're reporting on this. And they're, you know, first is like, you know, uh, Fairfax County LSD king, kingpin commits suicide. You know, and I was like, yeah, my fucking plan worked. You know, seven years, my parents can get me declared legally dead. You know, Seth Ferrante's gone. I can be whoever I want, you know, and have a normal life or whatever. But what they did is the, uh, the park rangers, like in this, they dragged the river for two weeks. You know, because there was a dam where, where I staged a suicide. So, um, and then two weeks later, they said, like, you know, fe- the headline in the metro section was like, you know, federal prosecutors uh, declare uh, LSD kingpin suicide a hoax because uh, they didn't find a body. So I, I fucked up. You know, that was like my one fuck up, you know, in, the, in that regard, in that plan. I, I staged my suicide on the wrong side of the dam. So when, when you move to L.A. and you're like, I can start a new life. Did you have a dream of what the new life would be? No, I mean, I, mean, I was just kind of, I mean, I was running, you know, I mean, um, you know, it was also too, because like my, my whole identity, everything about me was, this was built on, on being this counterculture drug dealer, mm-hmm. you know, rock star type figure. So, um, you know, when and at 20 years old, when, when all that was taken and then, uh, you know, it, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier 
you know, like, you know, then, you know, you start even, even if you're, you're certain, like, I, you know, I was, I believed in all this stuff, but then when all this stuff happens, I'm like, well, you know, you question yourself, you second guess yourself. Like, maybe I am wrong. You know, maybe society is right. You know, maybe I am a drug addict. Maybe all this stuff I'm doing is wrong. You know, so it's just like, you know, like my, my whole self-esteem, everything just was like, went out the window because it was all built on this identity. So I was like stripped of everything. I was stripped down to nothing. So when I was a fugitive, I, I was kind of, you know, I was running, but I, I was trying to find myself. Like I didn't know who I was, you know, which is, is a lot of things I, I think a lot of pe people experience and, and a lot of people, you know, who abuse or get addicted to drugs, you, you experience that. So, um, yeah, so I was just kind of trying to figure out who I was. So, I mean, I, I had a plan, you know, I was getting different IDs. I was establishing like legitimate, you know, identities, you know, um, I was, I would find like, uh, you know, I read all these books. They had all these books. They had these companies back then called like Loom Panics and Paladin Press. That's like where like they used to sell stuff like the Anarchist Cookbook is probably like yeah, one of the yeah. best well-known ones, yeah, but they had all these books like on identities, like Paper Trip, Paper Trip, one, two, and three, you know, understanding U.S. identifying documents, you know, uh, reborn in the USA. And I read all these books and I, I, and I figured out through reading these books that you could find if you found somebody who, who basically was born in one state and then died in another state, you know, as, as a young kid or a baby, like under five, then the only identifying document they had at that time was the birth, was the birth certificate. Right. And they, at that time, which I still don't know if they do it now, but they didn't cross reference birth and death certificates if it was a different state. Like, you know, if you were born in the same city or the same state and you die, then they'll cross-reference it and they'll mark deceased on the birth certificate. But if it was born in one state, died in another state, they didn't do that because there was that's no, the uh, you know, yeah. inner... Yeah, so that's why I found all these, you know, candidates. I would go, you know, I, I was out in L.A. and I, I would go to UCLA and they have this big, uh, like, newspaper archives, like on the micro the microfilm. So I would go there every day and I would just uh, scour, like, obituaries until I found like candidates at work. And then I would write, you know, then with the information from the obituary, I could write and get the death certificate. And I would just act, you know, you got to act like you're a relative, but it's just a letter and you put like a $10 money order or something, you know, and I was running everything through like mail drops, you know, like mailbox, et cetera, stuff like that. So uh, I would open up these mailboxes, you know, I would get the death certificate. And then once I get the death certificate, you only need to know three things for the death certificate. That's, uh, you know, the person's name, and uh you know the place of death and the date of the death and you can get the the birth certificate or the death certificate then to get the birth certificate once i had the obituary and i had the death certificate i could get the birth certificate because you got to know five things for the birth certificate you got to know you know the person's name you know father's name mother's maiden name you know place of birth you know date of birth so then i would get all that information and then i would act like you know whatever i'm the person's dad or whatever send me this birth certificate and I would run it through these mailboxes. And then once I got the birth certificate, I was pretty much home free because when you go to the DMV, all you need is a birth certificate and then you need something to verify your social security number. And it was really easy to verify a social security number because all you needed was a W-2 form. And so wow. from these books, I found out that you could, you know, like any business, you go to any like business supply company, you can buy like a box of W-2 forms, you know, like government wow. issued W-2 forms like that they would fill up. out for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So I would get those. And then I had this other book called Understanding U.S. Identifying Documents. And it broke down like, you know, because every social security number 
you know, it basically goes by state. You know, like my, for my social security number, uh, it's oh, it starts out with 039. So that was like designated, like maybe like 037 to like 040 was like the state, you know, that I got my social security number. And then the next two numbers are issued by like the year, you know, so it's, it's not like, like if you got it in 75, it's not going to say 75, but it might be like, you know, two, three. So right. two, three in this state means that it was issued in 75. And then the last four, the last four numbers are just random. So once I figured out the formula, you know, I figure out, I got the birth certificate. Okay. We was born. So I make it, you know, social security number issued from that state, you know, maybe a couple, you know, cause back then in the seventies, you know, now kids might get social security numbers, like right when they're born, you know, but back then sometimes kids wouldn't get a social security number until maybe you start working, you know, when right. you're 15 or 16. So, you know, you could do that. And then I would go with the W2 form and I would go with the birth certificate and I would go get like a, a Walker's ID, you know, and then, uh, you know, later if I want to get a driver's license and, um, you know, I was still at the age though, where, where I was young enough, you know, like if they said, well, like, why, why haven't you had an ID before you had an ID in another state? And then I would use like my, my military brat story. I'd be like, oh, well, I was stationed overseas, right. you know, with my parents. Which I just works. came back to the States. Yeah. And it, and it worked. And basically, you know, if you, if you have the paperwork, you know, to back it up, you are who you say you are. You right. know, so I would just come in and, and I established like, you know, 20, 25 different IDs through legitimate means. I even got poor passports. I had four passports because as a fugitive, my goal was to make, I wanted to get like 250,000 cash and then I was going to like, you know, go disappear overseas, you know, because I lived, I lived in Germany as a kid and, and I lived in England as a teenager. So, you know, I had, I had friends, you know, over there, you know, our friends that my parents had formed friendships with you know, people that I knew. So that was like eventually my plan, but you know, I needed money. So I was hustling the whole time, you know, to get, you know, this goal of $250,000 cash so I could take off. Yeah. So, so what happened? Like, how did you get caught? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, and I'm also was your, your and, plan, your plan was England or Germany or like, I'm going to get two fifty, two hundred fifty thousand dollars together. And then I'm going to, yeah, Europe, yeah, probably England, England, other year. Cause I figured two fifty would give me, you know, enough time, you know, a couple years to kind of get established. And then, you know, probably like I figured I could go over there. I could do the same thing and that I could become like a, U I could get UK ID, become like a UK citizen. Right. You know, so. Yeah. So that was like, you know, at first I didn't have that plan, but you know, as, as the, as the, uh, new, you know, the suicide ruse didn't work, I kind of developed this new plan. You needed a plan. You know, it, yeah. So that was kind of it, but you know, um, I was, I was still hustling, you know, like, you know, cause I had a little bit of money, but it ran out like in six months I was out in LA. So then I had to go back to Texas and hook up with my, my Mexican weed dealer. And I, and I started hustling again, you know, so, um, you know, this is like 91 to 93. So this is like the, the height of the war on drugs. So, I mean, if you're selling drugs at the height of the war on drugs, you're bound to get caught. So I kind of started hustling. I, I started taking weed from Dallas, Texas up to St. Louis. And I kind of had like my little second drug run where I started making money again. Started kind of getting my mojo back, you know, and started forming all these plans, you know. But, uh, you know, I built up some money, but I, I didn't build up enough as I needed. And eventually, uh, I got, I got arrested with somebody else. You know, my, my buddy got busted and, and he had some weed in the car and I was in the car, like when they got pulled over. So they, they took us both in. And even though he said it was his weed and they released me, they printed me, you know? So 
they printed me and once they printed me you know it was like i had no idea i was like top 15 u.s marshals list which that's a, another crazy thing in my life because uh i was a first time nonviolent offender so it was like how did i get made a, a top 15 u.s marshals list like you know with the you know so what they were saying they had the fbi top 10 most wanted and then they got the u.s marshals they call it the top 15 list so you know for whatever for like that that two years or whatever they had me as like one of the most 25 most wanted people Why in the united states for, i didn't know at the time but after you know I, I i once i went to prison i started doing like uh freedom information acts and i started getting like a lot of information and i was doing it to all the different government agencies you know the park rangers and everybody that investigated me and so i found out there was this guy named uh henry hudson who was with the uh, uh, u.s attorney's office in northern virginia and he was like the second in charge he was like the assistant u.s attorney on my case right so when i took off you know i kind of left like a, a black mark on their record you know because they felt like you know this little uh 20 year old suburban kid like you know outsmarted the feds so right after i left i i absconded this dude he went from being the assistant u.s attorney to the head of the U.S. Marshals in Northern Virginia. So basically, like this dude, just because like I was a black marketer, he felt like I was the one that got away. He did all the paperwork, you know, to, to make me a top 15 fugitive as a first time nonviolent offender. And even like when I got caught, like the U.S. Marshals were looking at me because I looked like a little college kid, you know, and they're like looking at me. They're like, they're like, who the fuck did you piss off? You know, right. but at the time, I didn't really know, you know, it wasn't until later, like seven, eight years later, when I start to get all this paperwork and I start to investigate everything and figure out, you know, why everything acted. And I'm doing like these massive freedom information acts, you know, for like two, three years that I kind of pieced all this together. And um, it's, it's kind of ironic, too, because, you know, in our country, the way the criminal justice system works, like people that work for the criminal justice system, you know, how they get promoted is by winning cases or getting these feathers in their cap. And I'll give you a perfect example. Everybody knows Rudy Giuliani. You know, Rudy Giuliani made his name by busting Gotti. Right. You know what I'm saying? So this dude, Henry Hudson, he's a Fourth Circuit appeal court judge down in Richmond, Virginia. So, you know, I'm not saying, you know, he just got that off of me. You know, there were probably several other cases. But you but were you a know, great feather I was, in his cap. Yeah, and, and really, he made me into more than I was, you know, because whatever, he was pissed off that I outsmarted, you know, their office. So, you know, he, you know, I should have, you know, that's what I always see. Like, you know, people talk about crimes and, and people talk about, you know, what's right and what's wrong. But I always look, especially at law enforcement. That's why I think our whole criminal justice system and law enforcement is corrupt. It's not like these individual people are corrupt. You know, some are, but that's like the, that's like the small percentage. The whole system is corrupt. Because what that dude making me into this top 15, I mean, that should have been a crime. I should have never been made, you know, top 15. I mean, obviously I'm biased because maybe if I wasn't top 15, I would have never got caught. But still, I mean, what it's like they want to examine people like me and investigate us and say everything we're doing wrong. But their own people can cut corners and do what they, they, they want in the name of justice. Right. You know what I'm saying? And, totally. and they're rewarded. They're rewarded with a, a federal appeal court judgeship. Right. And, and it's not like, listen, you, you wound up serving 21 years. 
So it's not like it's very hard to to look back at and say everything happens for a reason. But like because you did what you did, you're making incredible art now. You're 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 you have a purpose. You have a vision. You know, which is, I mean, that's some of the most important shit to have in your life. So I mean, that's something good that came of it. If you hadn't gotten busted, who knows if you would have a purpose and a vision, or you'd have a different one, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like who I am today. You know, I, I like where I'm at. I mean, it, it, it's been a long road. I've, I've had to endure a lot of stuff. But, you know, I, I you know, persevered and, and I came out the other end. You know, I got I got three college degrees in prison that uh, not that the prison paid for, that my parents paid for correspondence. So I got an AA, a BA and a master's degree. You know, I started writing. I was doing columns for Vice in prison. Uh, you know, I wrote like 22 books in prison, you know, on gangsters and, and prison life, you know, in prison gangs and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, now you wrote I'm, 22 I'm out, I'm out books here. in prison. Twenty two. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. So like ha, ha, what made you realize that that's what you wanted to do? Well, first off, I, I just started reaching out because I was so mad about my case, you know, because I got 25 years as a first time nonviolent offender, you know, so I was like, you know, I was, you know, and like I say, this is my country. I'm American. I'm like, you know, how is my own country doing this to me? You know, when when you see like the United States of America versus Seth Ferrante, I mean, that's like crazy. That's like your whole country is against you. Right. You know, so so I was very, very angry, you know, so I at first I started I was reaching out because I was trying to get publicity for my case because I was like, man, this shit is fucked up. You know, why the fuck do I got 25 fucking years for fucking selling some weed and acid at colleges, you know, and never carried a gun, never really was a violent person at all. And um, so that kind of led, you know, to, to writing about my case as I'm taking these college courses and I, I'm taking a lot of journalism you know, I've taken a lot of creative writing because when you take correspondence courses, you can go two routes, basically like a liberal arts or like a business, you know, kind of business administration or whatever. So I went like the liberal arts, which was, you know, reading and writing heavy, reading all these, you know, classic literatures, you know, different stuff and, and writing about it. And then, you know, journalism and all that stuff. So uh, I started writing about my case first. And then to me, it was almost like a uh, I mean, to me, it was like a drug, too, because once I started getting recognition, once I started getting that stuff published, it just made me want more. Right. You know, and then as I got into the writing more and then I got where like, you know, by the end of the 90s, you know, like people, they want to start paying me to write from prison. You know, when I start doing stuff for Vice, I started doing a lot of prison basketball stuff for like Hoops Hype Slam, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, I'm doing all this different stuff and then I get paid. So then, you know, just like when I started selling drugs, you know, money is like takes the uh, motivation to another level. Right. You know, it's intoxicating so then, too, because it gives you status. It's a different status. Now you're this author in prison who's getting paid and status and it's feeding probably a similar thing that when you're the rock star LSD dealer is feeding. Yeah. Yeah. It's, to me, it's always been, um, you know, about, about recognition. I, I don't know, whatever it is, you know, like all of us in, involved, you know, if it's podcasts, making movies, writing books, whatever, we have this thing, you know, where we want that recognition. We want to get our opinion out there. We want to be, you know, justified or verified or we want people to like our stuff. I mean, you know, not everybody has that, but, you know, a lot of artistic people have that. So and, and to me, I think like when I think back now, you know, as a, as a 51 year old man, I, I think it all goes back to, you know, that military brat thing, because, you know, I was moving like every two or three years when I was growing up. So I always had to like reestablish myself and you know, with, with friends and, and the community, like in the school. And then as soon as I would feel like I'm established, we would move again. 
and I would have to start from scratch. So, right. I mean, maybe that's why I have like this recognition. I'm always like, you know, still to this day, like I'm, I'm, I'm screaming, you know, for recognition, you know, with, with all my work, I'm like, you know, whatever, uh, you know, look at me, recognize me, you know, like my shit, you know, but and, you're and, and like I said, hell. you don't stop working. Like you just made this, uh, this Netflix movie that was a crazy hit, right? White boy. Yeah. Yeah. White boy. Yeah. So I, I actually, I formed a relationship with white boy, Rick. I started writing him cause I, I was doing my street legend series. I was writing about all the, uh, you know, like the inner city gangsters, like from the crack era. So I was locked up in West Virginia and um, there was a lot of guys from Detroit. So I kept hearing about this guy, white boy, Rick, white boy, Rick. So I reached out to him and I was like, you know, cause he was in another prison. So I had my wife write him. And uh, I was like, dude, like, I want to tell your story. You know, here's my books. And he was like, man, I like your, he'd write me back. He'd be like, man, your books are awesome. He goes, but my story isn't really like that. And, uh, you know, at first he started telling me like, you know, how he was an informant and you know, how the, how the government basically like pimped him out and used him. And like, at that time I'm writing like these, I'm basically like, like romanticizing and glorifying. I'm, I'm making these, uh, crack era drug lords, like into like these, you know, Billy, the kid, yeah, you know, yeah, John Gotti type it's young figure. guns, you know, it's young guns, right. On freeway yeah, Ricky yeah. Ross or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he's telling me like this different story. So at, at, when I first started writing them, I, I couldn't, uh, you know, it wasn't registering me. I, I, I couldn't get around it because like, I was like, well, this is what I do. And he was telling me this story that didn't kind of vibe with what I was doing. But you know, I, I, I kept, I kept writing and we kept up the relationship because you know, he was a white kid, went to prison young, had a lot of time. And I was, so, you know, we had kind of these similarities, you know, where we identified with each other. And it took me, it took me a lot of years, man, as a writer and as a person. So it probably wasn't, you know, until after I'd been writing for, you know, like, you know, seven or eight years that I started looking at the drug war and law enforcement for what it really was, you know? Because like when you're in the prison, it's like, oh yeah, you know, fuck the snitches, you know, these dudes fucked it up, you know? But then when you look at it more like the bigger picture, it's uh, I mean, still whatever. I mean, the the snitches they they snitch. That's what they did. But you got to look at the reasons why they snitch. You got to look at the reasons how the system's set up. You know, and a lot of times when they're threatened in 10, 20 years, you know, a lot most people aren't gonna aren't gonna stand up. You know, most people are gonna tell them whatever they want because they can't face that. You know, it's right. it's the uh, minority. You know, a very low percentage of people. So I start looking at the system, and then I started seeing Rick's story different. I started seeing him as a victim of the drug war. So that kind of opened up my writing more. So I started doing like more criminal justice reform, right. you know, prison reform stuff as I grew as a person and as right. I grew as a writer. So then I, I started writing about him while I was still in prison. And um, yeah, I had this one piece that was on this uh, drug war site called The Fix, like in 2012 while I was still in. And it kind of went viral about his story and attracted a lot of a lot of attention. So I kept I kept writing about him and um. Then, you know, as I get closer to getting out, you know, I kind of decide I'm like, you know, uh, you know, I've been writing, but I go to me as a writer, how you, you know, the next level in writing is, is, you know, writing for film, you know? So I kind of got that in my mind. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm a writer. I got all these books out, but when I get out, I want to make film. So I started studying film more. And then, you know, I, I kept writing him and I say, look, dude, I said, when I get out, you know, I want to try to, I want to try to find somebody. I want, I want to get you out, but you know, uh, I want to try to get a film made about you, you know, that tells your story and stuff like that. And that's, you know, when I got out, like through my journalistic stuff, 
I was doing a lot of stuff where I was interviewing like writer, directors, producers who were putting out like, like true crime stuff or even like, you know, crime drug type movies. I was doing a lot of that stuff for Vice because that's like stuff I like to watch. So I was developing these contacts, you know, because I would interview these people. I'd get them an article on Vice when their new stuff came out. But then I was forming relationships so then I could pitch, pitch my ideas, you know, to these producers. And that's how I hooked up with Sean Rett, you know, from Transition Studios. He had put his first movie out called uh, Murder in the Park, and I interviewed him for it. And then, you know, I, I, I kind of told him these different ideas I had. And then, uh, you know, he, he started reading my stuff about White Boy Rick. And um, at the same time, they were making a Hollywood movie was starting production, you know, with Matthew McConaughey called White Boy Rick. And uh, he was like, man, let's do the doc. He, he's like, I think I can find money for this. And he found the money. And uh, we basically, you know, made the documentary. And, and I was kind of like, he kind of mentored me in, in documentary filmmaking because I knew how to tell a story. You know, I was already a writer, but, you know, I'd never made a film or anything. So I worked with him. You know, he used to fly me in for all the shoots. And it was cool because... He would sit in the director's chair and interview all these people. And then, like, when he was done, he would tell me, he'd be like, oh, Seth, go ahead, take five minutes. You know, and I would sit in the director's chair and I would, I would, you know, throw some more questions, you know, and interview the people. And then he, like, took me through the whole process, you know, and, and basically taught me everything. And this guy, Sean Reck, too, he cut his teeth. He made, like, uh, you know, 200 Crime Stopper shows for all the networks. That was kind of, like, how he started and he had won like nine regional Emmys in Ohio, you know, so he was like an Emmy winning, you know, director, producer. That's and cool. um, I kind of learned. Yeah, I kind of learned under him, you know, and then, uh, you know, even even when White Boy first came out, because it was on Stars for like two years. And, you know, some people watched it or whatever, but it, it didn't it didn't go viral or it didn't cause like this big buzz. It wasn't until it went on Netflix, you know, a year ago in April at the end of the pandemic that it sure. blew up because I think we were a benefit. I call it like the, the Tiger King effect. Right. You know Absolutely. what I'm saying? Yeah. So it go it goes on in April. You know, it's at the end of the pandemic. People are still at home. They're looking for something. And it just like blew up. It was like it was a new release. And it, it was like top 10 on Netflix. Not top 10 documentaries. It was like top 10 for everything on Netflix for like two weeks. And then it had like 20 million views in two months. And, uh, you know, before that, I was kind of... Uh, I had all these ideas and stuff I wanted to do, but I didn't have any money. You know, film is expensive. So, you know, you need money, you know, to hire the right people to get the equipment, you know, to do all the travel and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, and it, it's weird too. Cause you know, when I was talking about that dab run earlier, so I was kind of like in a funk, you know, I, I was kind of depressed. I was smoking dabs all day. I was kind of like zombified, you know, cause I, I couldn't get money for this stuff I wanted to do. You know, nobody believed in me. My name wasn't big enough you know, in the film world as a, as a writer director. So once uh white boy went on Netflix and blew up, it kind of put me on the map and it got, and that's like, as soon as that happened and, and people were more interested because people started coming out, even people I, I had pitched before and asked for money, you know, and they, they passed, they came back to me and they're like, well, what was that idea you had? Right. They're like we might want to invest. So it was like, right at that time, I was like, man, you know, I had like some serious conversations with my wife you know, about my drug use. And, and she was like, look, you got all this interest. She's like, you know, she's like, basically, you know, she's like, you're 50. She's like, this is your time right now. 100%. She's like, you know, you need to be, you need to be the best that you can be. And right. you're not the best you can be smoking dabs all day. Right. So, you know, she, I kind of knew this all in myself, but, you know, having her tell me, 
you know, I might have been a little resistant at first, but you know, so it was kind of I was like, okay, fuck it. And yeah, and, man. and I'm not gonna say I went completely stone sober because uh, you know, I was still, you know, drink some whiskey every now and then. And um I like to like microdose on mushrooms. You know, that's one of my things too. So, you know, it wasn't like I was too but I kind of left the the cannabis alone. And uh now I got I got six projects in in the works right now that are uh three of them are, are nearing completion. And then, uh, you know, three more, I'm, I'm making good headway. So basically, like in the next 12 months, I'm going to be dropping about six six different projects, documentary I think that's projects. awesome. I mean, I, I think it's just incredibly inspiring, the shit you do. Um, let me, I have two more questions, basically. First question is, you get out of prison after 21 years, and here you're talking about how much money you need to finance films. Does it pop, does hustling ever pop into your head again? Yeah, no, of course, because, you know, it's it's weird. When I got out of prison, all my friends, you know, from prison that are out, they're all they're all in the weed game or they're doing, like, white-collar crime. Because, you know, once you do time, you figure, like, what what are the, uh, you know, what are the what are the uh, things, you know, that, they're, that the government's not really worried about? So, you know, with legal weed, the, the, the you know, they're not really stressing the weed. I mean, you know, if you put it in their face, whatever, they'll bust you or they find a bust. They're not going to, you know, turn away a bust or let you go, but it's like low profile. So I got out, like all my friends are hustling weed, right? And I, I got like friends, you know, like I had a lot of temptation because I got a lot of friends. They're like, here, man, you know, take this, take this, take that. Dude, you want to do something in your area? You know, I can hook you up. And I'm like, I'm like, no, man, I'm doing this film stuff, man. I'm doing this writing stuff, you know, but it helped because basically when I got out for the first five years, I was out. You know, even though I was making white boy, I supported myself like with journalism. You know, I was I was like one of the biggest freelancers at Vice. Yeah, you, you know, wrote a from, million from, things from, like, there. I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, from like I like just... 2015 to 2020. I, I mean, I, I was their biggest freelancer. So, and I, I was making good money. Like I'm telling you, when I got out, I got out of prison, and it wasn't. I was in the halfway house first for six months. So the halfway house, like you got to have a job and all this stuff. So, uh, you know, I didn't have enough time to write. But after I got out of the halfway house. And um, I, I just went down to a part-time job, you know, because I told my PO, I said, look, I'm going to keep this part-time job because I know you guys want me to have a job. But I go, I'm going to make it part-time because I go, I, I got this writing career. You know, I had I had already had a lot of clips, you know, but I go, I want to go into this full steam. And 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 she was like, cool. You know what I'm saying? So I jumped in. So it, it was crazy. So I went from, I got a halfway house, you know, I'm working like some bullshit jobs, $10 an hour, maybe making whatever, two grand a month. And then I started writing and I'm making like five to eight grand a month, you know, like six months out of prison, you know, but, but I'm busting ass, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes I'm publishing like three to five pieces a week. It's amazing. You know, and, and I'm, yeah. And, I, and I'm like, really for like, you know, and I was on the national scene too, for like, you know, for like the true crime, the, the drug stuff, the prison stuff, you know, I was like vice's go-to guy. And I kind of, uh, you know, I, I developed myself into like a Q&A guy where I did a ton of Q&As. You know, Q&As are simple because it's just shaping. It. It's, it's more shaping than writing. You know, just interview and then you transcribe and you shape. So that enabled me to do more stuff, you know, because it's not like I'm just writing stuff off my head. And then two, I started doing these features for like Penthouse and, uh, you know, a lot of the foreign magazines like in the UK and Australia, like Real Crime. And I was doing all these these big features and I was getting pretty good money for them too. So... You know, I had I had kind of that. So luckily, because of that, I was making good enough money. You know, I didn't have to give in to the temptation. Yeah, because I, I had dudes, 
I had all my all my homies from prison, you know, that were in the they were like, dude, here they're like trying to throw me stuff. Here, man, just take this. You know, because they 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 trusted me. You know, they knew I was about my business. Yeah, so I kinda uh I was lucky, you know, if I was just working a bullshit job the whole time, ten, ten, twelve dollars an hour, maybe I would have right. succumbed to that. But right, you know, because of the journalism career, you know, and, and like I say, the journalism career was twofold because not only was it good money, you know, um, I was making a lot of contacts, you know, because that's why I, I was like, I want to do films. So I started doing where I was just like looking for films that I liked that I would have watched anyhow. And I would get the films before it was released and I would get to interview the filmmaker for Vice, you know, so it, and I would make that contact, you know, and some people you vibe with, some people you don't vibe with. But I was mm-hmm. always pushing my ideas on the filmmaker because that's, you know, that was my ultimate goal. And, you know, luckily enough, you know, I got with Sean Reck and, and, and White Boy and then boom hit netflix and uh yeah here we are today and i'm I'm about to drop uh six projects in the next 12 months yeah i think it's time to get working on the dopey the dopey project the dopey netflix movie i think that i think that's what i'm that's what i'm seeing right here um no you're yeah. you're serious fucking inspiration uh I'm, it's very exciting to me all this stuff how do you microdose mushrooms like is it in your tea right now like where is the how do you microdose uh mushrooms like like you just why well, get these um well, I, I do it mostly like uh, I get these capsules. Right. It'll be like um, it'll be like 0.5 grams extract, you know. So uh, yeah. Is so it I like just speedy? get these capsules. What does it like, feel like? It's not. It's not a deep trip. No, yeah, mushrooms like maybe you 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 can get you have like a little moment of of anxiousness when it first hits, but then it's just like. You get like a like a really warm feeling, you know. You kind of smile more. To me, the, the microdosing the mushrooms it just makes me appreciate my life and what I have, you know, on my right. wife and my house and my dogs. It makes me appreciate everything more. Because sometimes in life, you know, especially in America, you know, everything is so materialistic. You look at what you don't have, right? You know, I think that's the biggest problem in American society today, or maybe the whole world. You know, a lot of times we look at what we don't have, and when when I micro those mushrooms it, it makes me really appreciate what i do have you find you know, that psychedelic it's, it's gratitude like, yeah it's it's like that whole thing it's like uh you know a lot of people like i have to go to work you know i have to work out i have to do this right you, you got to flip it right you got to be like i get to go to work i get to work out you know i because you're fucking alive you know what i'm saying and, and you got your health you know, some people don't. I mean, some people are in fucking wheelchairs. Some people got, you know, uh, you know, different diseases. Some people got like fucked up mental shit. Some people are like in awful shape. You know what I'm saying? Well, like so I said like, before, you know, like I said before, I mean, just to say that it was convenient to be in jail because you're writing about criminals. It's optimism. You know, you come out of 21 years in jail with this profound gratitude. It's amazing. Yeah. Like, I mean, like it had to. No, inform- I'm just I'm a. Yeah, I'm a I'm a glass I'm a I'm I'm the type of dude like the glass is half full. Sure. The glass is not half empty. Right. You know, and also I, I tell people all the time, like, look, I don't dwell on the past, man, because I, I see a ton of people and you see it like with with addiction, you know, violent crime. People just focus on the past. They can't let it go. Like whatever happened to them, you know, if it's a girl broke up to him, if they got 20 years in prison, you know, if, if something fucked up happened to them there when they was a kid or whatever, and they hold on to it, they can't let it go, and that just fucks them up, because they're always trying to escape, that's why a lot of people, you know, addicts and stuff, you go to drugs, because 
you know, whatever this shit, you can't let it go. So I'm like the type of person, like, I only move forward. I don't think about the past. I don't want any negativity around me. You know, if, if somebody's negative, I tell them, you know, get the fuck out of here. I don't care if it's my wife. I was thinking, man, take that shit, you know, and, and I'm also a firm believer. Like I only, when I talk, I only talk positive, you know, cause I believe you manifest like what you talk. So I don't, I don't talk negative stuff. I don't talk negative. And I learned all that in prison because when I was in prison, I saw all these fucked up people, right? Fucked up people, man. And I'm like, and, and looking at them and watching all these fucked up people, people coming in and out. You know how many people I saw in 21 years go in and out, you know, like three, four times on these little right. skid bids. And, right. I, and you know, they're just fucked up. And, and I'm, you know, after my first five years in prison, I was like, you know what? I was like, I don't want to be any of these people. So I'm only going to be positive. I'm going to push negativity. You know, like if I have a negative thought, I just change it in my mind into a positive thought, you know, because to me, it's all it's all mindset and, and how you look at the world. Yeah, I think that's awesome. Um, thank you, man. Fucking awesome. And uh, what do you think about the dopey documentary for Netflix, man? Have you you got to look into our story? I think it's it's a worthwhile yeah. story. No, to I tell. saw you. Uh, I saw you guys just did uh, Jack Russell. That was cool. Yeah, yeah, White. yeah. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. Fuck, I, I think he's sick too. I think something happened to him. I think oh, like he? I think he just got sick. But uh, yeah, I'm and I didn't know you interviewed. All right. I didn't know you interviewed Nikki Six. That's cool. Uh, Nikki Six. Nikki Six is a big hero. Curtis, Danny Trejo, fucking. Oh yeah, I love Danny Trejo too. That's only a little bit of the story. I have to, I have to educate you on the dopey story, and we'll see what what we can do. Some collaboration. Yeah, definitely, man. Yeah, I'm open to listen. Right on. Um, thank you, Seth. It's fucking crazy story, and I really appreciate your time, man. All right, appreciate appreciate you having me on, man. I'm also psyched for bicycle day. Fucking, I mean, yeah, like, yeah, that's good. Yeah, we got to do a dopey big, bicycle man. day thing. Or maybe this will be the dopey bicycle day thing. Uh, Cause it's coming yeah. up. No, that, that event's going to be awesome. So we got, um, I'm going to show basically the first 25 minutes of the film, basically like the first chapter in nine, you know, three acts of film. It's going to be three films. And then uh, we're going to have a panel discussion. And um, yeah, we got, we got some like psychedelic luminaries, like some icons. We got Hamilton Morris is going to be there. You know, from Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, you know, sure. he's in my film. We got Leonard Picard, you know, the Harvard-educated chemist that had life and just recently got out during COVID. You know, we got Roni Stanley, you know, who was Bear Owsley's partner and, and the mother of one of his kids. Mark McLeod, who runs the Blotter Barn, you know, in, in San Francisco. That's the Blotter Art Museum. We got Carolyn Mountain Girl Garcia, who was not sure. only a merry prankster, but was married to Jerry Garcia from the Grateful Dead. You know, we got my boy Tim Tyler, who had life for LSD, and then he got a pardon from Obama and got out. So, uh, you know, and then... Uh, Sounds the, amazing. The, yeah, the psychedelic, the big psychedelic journalist, in, uh, Madison Margolin is going to be there. Yeah, it's going to be awesome, man. It's, it's going to be an event. And, um, yeah, I'm just happy, man. I'm, I'm happy that all these elders, you know, because these people like that I mentioned, especially the elders, I mean, they're like my heroes. You know, they're the people, they've been my heroes, like, since the 80s when I was a teenager. You know, they kind of made this culture you know, that I kind of fell into and was attracted to. So it's just amazing. Like, like I can call mountain girl on the phone. I mean, that, that to me, that is just the most amazing thing. You know, like I told people just the other night, I was talking to New Jersey weed, man. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but uh, he, he's, he's like on the East coast. He's fought a lot of battles for medical cannabis in New Jersey. So he's kind of like this celebrity figure. So I'm talking to New Jersey weed, man. And as I'm talking to New Jersey weed, man, Hamilton Morris is texting me 
uh, White Boy Rick is texting me. Uh, Saka yeah. Senor's texting me. Steve D'Angelo. So it's it's weird because all we're all, you know, not like we're actors or we're celebrities, but like you know, in the drug world, you know, we're all these people are all you know some bigger names than others. But it's 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 just crazy, man. How you um you know as you kind of rise and you form these relationships and you see all these other people you know that have either been involved in the drug world or the criminal world or did time and we're all kind of you know coming up in the entertainment world you know together and 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 making our mark and two we're we're bringing the real stuff man you know we're not some writer from columbia or harvard who is just interested in this stuff like we live this stuff like we are the authentic you know people from this culture so you know and now they're just not telling the stories about us now we're telling the stories about ourselves and you know our peers so uh i think it's it's really crazy what's kind of happening now you know with all these uh you know ex-cons and and drug world uh figures that are in the entertainment industry that's what i say i, I always tell people i would say we're here to take over nice count me in count yep. me in the takeover fucking hell all right. love it all right thanks man uh All right. so we say i guess this is the fucking show we say stay strong dopey nation and fucking toodles for chris um all right listen stay stay strong stay strong dopey nation yes and say fucking toodles for chris because chris died doing and the show fucking toodles for chris yes sir thanks seth fucking there's a guy i know named uh suave who was like in jail his whole life in philly and he has a show called death by incarceration i should get you on his show um yeah 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 hook me up man hook me up and then there's these guys in texas who are like they're like weed dealers now but they're making all this money on nfts they're called dopehead nfts and 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 it's all about uh non-violent drug offenders uh advocating for them so i think i should hook you up with them too oh yeah yeah definitely man hey that that's what it's about, man. I, I know it's about it's about who you know, man. You got to jump out there because I, I feel like uh, the more relationships you have, the, the more people you know, the more opportunity you're going to have. 100%. Um, I'm really interested in talking to Roni Stanley. Um, like she's somebody, I heard her on uh, the good old Grateful Dead cast and she's got a great voice, yeah. you know? No, no, I, I, no, I, I can talk to her. I can talk to her for, wait, when, uh, like, let me know when this comes out. Yeah. And then, then you, I'll, I'll have her watch it, you know. Right, cool. I'm gonna be with her, but yeah, you know, I can mention to her. I'm sure, you know, because she has a book called, uh, you know, um, Owsley and Me: My LSD uh, Story. I need to read so, the you book. Know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so awesome. yeah, she she would love to she would love to do that and get get more stuff out there. And plus, she she could talk about the the documentary too because she's basically like my my right hand person. Her and Tim Tyler are like my 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 executive producers. They're the ones who give me the access. You know, to all the all these people, especially Roni. I mean, Roni goes back. I mean, she goes back to like the the mid '60s. I mean, she was around the Grateful Dead when they were the Warlocks. You know, she was around the Merry Pranksters. I mean, they they said like when 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 Bear Owsley, you know, uh, distributed you know dose the whole Monterey Pop Festival. You know, with like a hundred thousand hits of acid, she made the acid with him. So I mean, she's been there forever. Yeah. Yeah, she she's like she she's like she's like an iconic and and a wonderful a wonderful intelligent uh strong woman, you know. I'm, cool. I'm so lucky to have her. Yeah, I'm so lucky to have her on this project with me. She's just provided so much access and 
you know, making sure, you know, that the project is, is going the right direction because she, she'll let me know if she doesn't like something, she will definitely let me know. She, is she from New York? Yeah, yeah, she, she's New York. Yeah. She like, she sounds Jewish. like she's, she, she's Jewish. Yeah, she's yeah, got she's, a great she's, she's vibe. Jewish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you know, she went she went to Columbia, very educated. Right. You know, went yeah, to yeah, Columbia yeah. and yeah, then I heard her and on then went out on good old Grateful Dead cast. She's fucking great on there. Um tell yeah. her I'm a big fan. And tell gangster. Her huh? What's that? And she's gangster, dude. She's like she's like the consummate outlaw. Okay. You know? Like still still to this day, still to this day, she's like, We don't fuck with snitches. I love that. You know, at se- seventy seventy something years old. And she's like, we don't fuck with snitches. Amazing. Amazing. All right, dude, that was a long interview, but I thought it was cool. Yeah, no, no, thanks, man. You know, I, mean, I could talk for hours, man. Right. You know? Say what's up to Ryan when you go out there for me, please. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. He's picking me up at the airport tonight. Oh, awesome. Say what's up. Yeah, shout out Ryan Leone, man. Thanks for the, uh, the hookup, man. And I'm glad I finally got to come on your show. Yeah, man, it was awesome. Thank you, Seth. So there you have it, Seth Ferranti, long, amazing, outlaw, dopey episode. Thank you, Seth. Bicycle Day is just around the corner. I don't think we could have two more uh, opposite sort of guests with my dad and Seth Ferranti. But uh, we did it. I hope you guys had fun. Please write us at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Send in emails, voicemails. Send it all in. It will get played Look for a lot of shit to come out on Patreon with emails also. Thank you, guys. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And I wanna take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by. And I wanna see a Lear jetliner take a dive. Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller. And it's high noon where I stand. Shadow's getting smaller and smaller. And it's high noon where I stand. And I wonder would they pay it any mind when I leave this busted city far behind? I'll take the high road, however far it winds, because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find. And I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be good so bad, so bad. Wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had 
And these suckers make me mad and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had 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 and these suckers make me mad and it's all I ever had and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had.